Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. Right, I am recording for Contrarian's Corner for Howard the Duck. Uh, I, I was so tempted to start this because of our guest with some sort of Muppets reference. I've just I have embedded into my my being now because we did the Muppets with him. Um, but before we get to introducing our guest, uh, I'm Alex, and this is the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Uh, joined as always by my friend and co-host cohort Julio. Julio Oliveira, we are here today to tackle yet again uh, one of something that's heralded as one of the worst movies ever made. It seems like uh, we've covered a couple of these on our podcast, and we're here today to break further ground as we go and visit the year of 1986, I believe, uh, with Howard the Duck, the one of the first entries into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think you could call um, you could call Howard a lost Muppet. And there you go. That's your reference. That's the tie-in? Yes. Jesus. He was Walter before Walter, pretty much, is what we had here. We had Howard. But, Julio, we are not alone. Uh, we've been fortunate enough recently to have a, a slew of guests and or guesting on podcasts. And uh, someone that we've collaborated with in the past has come back to join us for whatever this visit of Howard the Duck is going to be. I think we, we needed the backup. We felt that we needed the backup. And, and who else, who better to call on uh, than Sam Hurley from Movie Reviews and 20 Qs, uh, a well-known Marvelite like myself, not so much like you, Alex, but at least Sam and I have that going on. So welcome, Sam. Welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, yeah, you're right. Me and Julio, we've been talking often about getting me on the show to de- debate the merits of the Marvel Cinematic Universe with Alex. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad to be here to do the godfather of the MCU. This is incredibly exciting. Yeah, it's uh, fitting, too, with all the MCU um, after yesterday making no more bones about it. Their goal is to take over society and the world in general. <laughs> so I think it's a, a fitting time to have you on to discuss this. You know, I haven't, uh, I haven't really read through any of the announcements. I've just seen like some of the headlines coming in, but as far as I can tell, no Howard the Duck announcement, right? No Howard the Duck announcement, but there is going to be a new TV series from Disney, whether it's Star Wars or Marvel. Pretty much every 14 or 15 seconds. So it's going to be pretty <laughs> fucking awesome if you're a fan of those properties. It's only a matter of time before they get to Howard. Yeah. he's. I mean, they're eventually going to run out of comic book characters. I mean, he's popped up at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy. We know he's coming. Okay. that I, you Sam, you already uh, beat me to the punch there. Like when I was watching this and I, for some reason, had it in my brain. I was like... There's some Easter egg with him in one of these fucking Marvel movies. I felt like I remembered it. So it's 
It's the Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> it is. It's Guardians of the Galaxy. He pops up at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, the collector gets licked by Cosmo the dog and cuts to Howard the Duck saying, how could you let that thing lick you? Gross. Voiced by Seth Green. He has already reemerged. Uh this would would have been in the time would um would that first Captain America movie have been out by eighty six? This is exactly the reason why you got me here. So the Captain <laughs> America movie came out in nineteen ninety. There was a couple okay. of early attempts by um, Marvel back in seventy eight. There was a Doctor Strange film. There was a Spider Man mm-hmm. TV movie that came out in eighty one. I believe the Incredible Hulk TV series had a TV movie that came out as well. So Stanley basically in the seventies actually left Marvel in New York and went over to LA and kept trying and trying and trying to do the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but he was trying to do it in the seventies and eighties, but he basically got no legs whatsoever. And so this, I believe, was the first cinematically released Marvel property because George Lucas came on board and obviously <laughs> got it made. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, and Roger Corman, Fantastic Four is early nineties, right? That was ninety four. Yep. Okay. All right, so getting getting a taste for the time here. Yeah, Sam um, Sam and Marvel facts is like you and wrestling facts, Alex. I'm just here in awe. <laughs> yeah, I'm just getting warmed up, will you? <laughs> and coming fresh off the heels of uh, a little independent film called Back to the Future, Leah Thompson uh, became the first starlet, I would say, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe with her performance here in Howard the Duck. So. Mm. With all that introduction, a little bit of potpourri discussion here to get us going. Uh, if this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, we appreciate you listening. Uh, if this is your returning listener, thank you very much. Uh, give us a moment here while we explain our gimmick to our uh, new listeners. Uh, here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, as we say. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated. Uh, we typically shoot for about 85 90% and above. Uh, a lot of times known as certified fresh and we'll make a case for maybe why that movie shouldn't be so highly regarded. Maybe why it should be taken down a peg or two. Uh, and then on the opposite side of the coin, find a movie that is uh, lowly rated, about 30% and below is usually where we shoot. Uh, also known as Rotten. Uh, being that it is 14% here, uh, Howard the Duck definitely falls into that category. So in this first portion of the podcast, we will be uh, making a, a case for maybe some of the positive merit that was overlooked in this movie from uh, viewers and critics alike. Like I said, I have pulled up here, and we will revisit this in the second portion of the podcast, but uh, basically Wikipedia assembled a list of what uh, are widely regarded as the, the worst movies ever made, and you can bet your bottom dollar that Howard the Duck is dead center of the 80s decade there. Um, <laughs> so yeah, in this first portion, we'll be talking about uh, hey, maybe some of the positive things that shine through. If you want to know how uh, the three of us really feel about this movie, which I get the impression is going to differ slightly uh, from person to person, stick around for the second portion of the podcast, the appropriately titled Real Talk. Um, but as we mentioned, Sam from Movie Reviews and 20 Qs is here with us. So before we launch into Howard the Duck, uh, Sam, this is your platform here. Tell us about uh, what you do, where, where we can find you, and uh, what you're all about. Oh, of course. Yeah, so Movie Reviews and 20 Qs is a show in which we review a movie by asking 20 questions about it. That's pretty much it. But what we typically try to do is we try to get a little bit sort of deep into that movie that might not be covered by other podcasts. So we might ask, like, what quote from this film is the worst to hear after sex? Or how would you have put Nicolas Cage into this film? Or, like, what deep philosophical debate arose in you while you're watching this film? So we try to make it sort of, like, fun and lighthearted while at the same time giving sort of like our kind of 
an entry-level criticism to the movie because aside from myself, pretty much everyone I get on the show has no movie criticism backgrounds whatsoever. They're just people. <laughs> They're just people. As, as someone who has guested on your show, I can attest to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also... Uh, it, Sam, I, I mean, we'll we'll get into this a little bit more on Real Talk, but you're also an author. I I have a real book written by you that's that sits yes. in my collection, uh, unread so far. Originally, back when uh, <laughs> back when we planned this, when we scheduled this, I was like, I am reading this book and I'm gonna tell Sam what I think about it when we record together. And then life happened, and it became okay. I'm gonna read the first chapter of this book <laughs> before we <laughs> we get to uh, to the recording. And then it's like, okay, well, I'm going to remember to bring up the book <laughs> when we record <laughs> together and promise that I will read it by the end of the year. It, it's been crazy. I, I I just started a new job that has just basically sucked my free time. But but still, it's just exciting. I mean, I, I, I don't know about Alex, but I personally get a kick out of uh, knowing the people like in real life, like knowing the, the people that are on my bookshelf. Uh, and uh, it, it was just a pleasure to add you to my collection there. Uh, uh, so this is just like a preview. We'll talk a little bit more about your book uh, yep. once we get to real talk. But uh, yeah, I didn't want it, this intro to go by without without mentioning that because now you're not just a podcaster. You're a podcaster and an author. You, you got a leg up uh, above the rest of us. That is, that's true. I'm becoming a yeah, man of many strings in my bow or whatever. I don't know what you call it, but yeah. I mean, Just, yeah. Next step is sell the rights to Disney and let them do everything they do uh, to those properties. Just I would not be surprised all. if by the end of this podcast that New Zealand is completely owned by Disney. I, I feel like it's just going to happen. <laughs> At some point, I feel like we'll probably be the first country to get bought, you know, because we're so far in the future ahead of everyone else. I think we're just going to get bought. I think we're going to get bought out by Disney. Yeah, and then we'll have, uh, I don't know, whenever we can travel safely again. So like 2025, whenever I go back to Disney and there'll be the movie reviews in 20 Q's Cantina at Disney Springs. <laughs> and we'll just have <laughs> Sam in a tuxedo greeting everybody. Good evening. <laughs> Welcome. Here are our specials. <laughs> Hello, good people. How are you? Yeah, I can just imagine it. Uh, all right. So let's get to it here. One of you fucking nerds here, bring me up to speed on Howard the Duck. Now, this is a Marvel property, so I'm just going to give a basic outline of my knowledge. This was like more of an adult-oriented comic. Is that correct? That is correct. I will sort of show a kink in my Marvel armor. I was not that familiar with Howard the Duck. Uh, he's not one of the more common characters. You know, like immediately when you think of Marvel, you think of X-Men, Fantastic Four, Captain America, Thor, all those sorts of guys. Howard the Duck was sort of... I believe a mid seventies creation that was sort of geared towards more adult audiences. And he was supposed to be just a piss take, just a sarcastic dude that yeah, basically is this film in a lot of ways. But yeah, that was, that was the whole intention of him. Uh, yeah. I know even less than that. I know he's a duck <laughs> and I know he talks and I know he had a comic. Um, I've I've always been curious to check it out, but I've never gotten around to it. Uh, I think it's good because it means that we, the three of us experienced this movie or at least we had a starting point that was similar. We knew very yeah. little about the character in the comics, which means that we are going to judge it on its own, not as in how it compares to the original material, which I think is good. It's fair to the to the filmmakers. Uh, I don't know how much of the of the original backlash was just you know, I don't <laughs> fans of the comic that thought that this, this wasn't an accurate representation, but I guess we'll see. 
There was a ton of people writing into Warner Brothers to say Michael Keaton shouldn't be playing Batman. I doubt there was anybody writing into Marvel or whoever made this film to say whoever shouldn't be playing Howard the Duck. In fact, I think there probably were people petitioning for this movie not to get made, if anything. So, yeah, that that's kind of where my confusion originally came in. Because I going into this, I thought this was like an R-rated like comedy. And then I realized I had it flipped. Like I thought that Howard the Duck was one of the more uh, fluffy, kid-friendly characters that marvel had and then they tried to make an adult comedy out of it but it was kind of backwards so <laughs> yeah like uh like a half hour into it i was like they haven't said fuck once and then i looked at like the uh the little skadoodle of what i was watching I was like oh this is rated pg and then the the rest of the movie just kind of happened to me so i realized <laughs> what i was in for so uh, to start us off with just that, uh, I watched this movie. Sam, something we've been doing is just kind of explaining how we came to watch this movie and kind of just giving our quick thoughts on the transfer, however it was you came to view it. Um, as part of the Showtime package, it was on demand hilariously. It was coming off, I think, at midnight tonight. So I watched it. It was almost uh, fortuitous. It was destiny for us to get together for this recording today because it was like only X amount of hours left to watch Howard the Duck. And so I watched uh, an HD presentation of it. I couldn't tell if it was an actual the DVD transfer or what it was, but picture was all right. Um, you know, the the Criterion Blu-ray coming out in a few months, I think, will up the game a little bit. Uh, Sam, how did you watch this? Do you own this in your Marvel collection? Uh, no, this is, um, yeah, an incredibly big blind spot for me. I really should own this in my Marvel collection. I watched this on Netflix. It was on Australian and New Zealand Netflix, which is completely different to mm. American Netflix. We've got about 2% mm. of the <laughs> like uh, quantity of films and stuff that you guys have, but I watched it on Netflix. I watched it on Netflix for the first time oh, maybe two years ago, and yeah, I watched it again, again, obviously, for this podcast, so yeah. Well, Netflix in America doesn't have Howard the Duck, so you have the right wow. 2% over there, and we, we're missing <laughs> out. Uh, I had to rent it on Amazon Prime because I don't have Showtime, and uh, it, it was fine. It, I, I watched it on the big TV. It looked beautiful, gorgeous colors. That duck looked like a real duck. Leah Thompson, I, <laughs> this is just... Uh, I, I guess I've never seen Leah Thompson on the big screen besides whenever I watch Back to the Future in movie theaters. Mm. So it was it was quite the experience. Uh, so immediately with Howard the Duck, as anyone who listens to this podcast knows, I am a big whore for uh, vintage uh, studio signatures. So just seeing that old school Universal studio signature just filled me with such uh, warmth and happiness. It definitely uh, readied my body for what was about to follow. And then immediately you get the George Lucas Presents. My note just says George Lucas, LOL. <laughs> Did you know that? Did you know that he was he was kind of like the muscle behind this operation? So that th there was a few things I knew about this movie. One of them obviously was its legacy or I guess its uh, uh, infamy. Uh, I knew that Leah Thompson was in it and I knew that uh, George Lucas was attached because it put a a kink a ding, a ding in his uh facade or his image excuse me there for a little while so that was one of the things i knew but i didn't realize he was so prominently featured and then i looked at all like the poster and advertising and it was all george lucas presents they wanted to uh, to get the most out of that star wars connection uh mm. now i i do have quotes alex it sounded like you're about to launch into a i'm into sorry i was i was getting ahead of it here i was getting excited with all that shit <laughs> we were talking about so yes being at 14 percent, it does mean that 
it's not like this movie set the world on fire as was intended. So what uh, what were the critics saying about it, Julio? Um, okay, so I got a bunch of uh, rotten quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website, and I don't know where they fall on the timeline because as I was scrolling through them, it felt like a lot of them were just post-MCU quotes, and I don't think that, that that's uh. fair. I think, like like we were talking just a little bit ago, it's the fair thing is to judge the movie on its own, not to judge it as part of the MCU. That said, uh, somebody like Danielle Zolzman from Zolzi at the Movies uh, says, Howard the Duck is the single worst film based on a Marvel Comics character to come into existence. Which, That's I mean... Categorically incorrect. I have seen Thor Ragnarok. Oh. Uh, no, Alex. Not even in Contrarian's Corner. I'm out. Say that. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say, I was going to make the same joke, but uh, I was going to use Iron Man 3, which is a lot more accurate. But Yes, uh, Anyway, Jason Bailey from DVDTalk.com says, The first big screen adaptation of a Marvel comic book makes their subsequent films seem like the flowers that bloom beneath a heavy load of dense fertilizer. (laughs) Has a way with words, Mr. Bailey. Uh, Scott Haller from People Magazine says, If you want to know why grown-ups don't go to the movies anymore, try suffering through this ludicrous curiosity. And that has to be one of the most pretentious things we've read on this show. <laughs> and that's covering a lot of ground. <laughs> yeah. So so he's a grown-up, I guess, and he doesn't like uh, practical effect ducks. Uh, and finally... What a bitch. This guy right? he claims to be a grown-up. You get an hour and 51 minutes of all-time hotness with Leah Thompson in this movie, and this guy's like, mm, yes, I don't find the film, the cinema, very attractive anymore. <laughs> Fuck off. This is, you're right. Like This is complete bullshit. This movie is unique. This is a complete one-of-a-kind. It's not like they were pumping out 100 Howard the Ducks every year, and that was all the cinematic landscape was made of. <laughs> that guy can suck a dick. Not mine. I don't want him coming anywhere near me, the fucking wanker. It, it's his fault that the movie failed, because of people like him. Uh, exactly. And finally... Christian Toto from What Would Toto Watch? Howard the Duck is the first clear sign that George Lucas, who executive produced this mess, ran out of pixie dust after wrapping Return of the Jedi. So there's your George Lucas quote, Alex. So two things that should immediately be tackled there. Uh, George Lucas didn't really have much to do with this besides financing it and some of the special effects. So it's not like he was... The things we should criticize George Lucas from a filmmaking perspective would come about 20 years after this. <laughs> uh, Correct. Or not even, f- 15 or so. But And then two, um, something I, I thought about with the, the, the comments about this being like a big Marvel flop. If you just watch this movie, especially in like 1986, I imagine – it, that none of the marketing material was Marvel's Howard the Duck. You had to know what you were going into, or if you saw it and were curious about it, had to do you, to do your research to know this was based off a Marvel comic book. Because at no point in this do they like. There's uh, there no even like cute like wink and nods like he's reading a, a comic in the waiting room in some scene. It's <laughs> it is not presented like a Marvel movie at all as we know them. I should say there's no Stan Lee cameo. Yes, yeah, there's no Stan Lee cameo, and it, like you're completely right. Like when. Like, my wife's favorite Marvel film is Guardians of the Galaxy. It's one of the few films that she actually watched, like, multiple times, seen the end credits, all that sort of stuff. And then when we started watching this, she even turned to me and said, this is based on a Marvel comic. And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) So even she had no idea this was a Marvel film. Yeah, it was, uh, I can imagine at that point in time, the 
there was no foresight into what would become of Marvel movies. So I think it's kind of unfair to compare the two time frames. But even all these years later, right, after more than 20 Marvel movies, like official MCU movies, there is still nothing like Howard Duck. <laughs> so no, it, it, not even no. by accident. They haven't stumbled upon something that resembles it, which I think makes it even more special and more, more, I guess, worthy of attention. And it, it should be clarified. There's well over 20 movies in the Marvel cinematic universe. So Correct. don't just do this shit about maybe 20, <laughs> uh, but it was correct me if I'm wrong. Marvel people, uh, the first Iron Man that came out in 2007 is viewed as like the beginning of that, correct? 2008 is correct. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, t- t- 22 years prior to the dawn of the MCU, they made their first, uh, the first attempt, excuse me, was made by Universal Studios at a Marvel uh, property-based film. And like I said, the old school Universal signature just... Uh, that's that had me right there. Uh, we get the George Lucas credit. Uh, no idea Tim Robbins was in this movie, so I was like, "Wait, what?" Uh, that <laughs> yep. Right away, I was like, "Oh my god!" Uh, seeing that, and I had to look it up, and it looks like this was, if not his first, one of his first uh, dabbles into uh, film. It was one. I don't think it was his debut film, but it was up there, and you could tell because he is wet behind the ears and eager to please in this movie. Yes, correct. He yeah. he is definitely out to make an impression, and uh, I I think he couldn't have chosen a better vehicle for that. How did you feel as as the credits were rolling? I don't remember he comes before or after Tim Robbins, but uh, when it it feels like we cannot escape Jeffrey Jones in this podcast, <laughs> he just sneaks into movies that we don't expect him to be in. I mean, for better or for worse, and it is for the worse. But uh, with Jeffrey Jones. I, I was like, oh, God. And then I remembered it was like, this was his peak. Like, Beetlejuice was him on the decline. <laughs> this was, you know, Ferris Bueller. This was this was as hot as he was going to get. I did not expect him to turn into, like, a fucking Doc Brown-style <laughs> alien by the end of this movie. But that's, a, that's a, a bridge we'll come to. Yeah, Jeffrey Jones, it was, it reads like such an 80s cast. Like, you can't. I was going to say you can't script this, but you can. But just like watching this from 2020 lenses, everything about the opening of this feels like an ambitious film made in 1986. It's glorious. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So right off the bat here, we get uh, an establishing sequence that we're on this planet where ducks reside as opposed to humans. It's basically everything's the same. It's just ducks instead of people. We quickly learn our character, our main character, the titular character, Howard the Duck, is here and in his home city, town, planet, is beloved. He is a ladies' man based off his answering machine. <laughs> and uh, he, I, I don't know where he's coming home from, but we see that he's just coming home to unwind, maybe from work, maybe from a, a date gone awry, maybe, you know, whatever he's been doing. And he is sucked from his home planet. And in the process, we see a bunch of uh, bystanders. We get, a, a for whatever reason, a, a duck in the bathtub. So we get a set of duck boobs to kick off this movie. My, what I'm leading to here is if this movie was made today, and both of y'all are big MCU you know, junkies, so this is something y'all are, I guess, just okay with, everything that we had seen in the first 10 minutes of this movie would have been CGI. But here we're getting practical effects 
clearly a little person in a an outfit here that's playing Howard the Duck and full set pieces, stage design, sets. It's glorious. Now, I understand that in the 20 or 30, over 30, what, almost 35 years since this movie has been released, there's been advances in computer-generated graphics and cost-cutting measures. But, Sam, my question to you is, even as a modern MCU fan, don't you find it somewhat refreshing to see uh, full practical effects, makeup, uh, costumes, and things of that nature on full display? Oh, it's, it's beyond refreshing. It's just like the level of talent and care and, you know, like how they've just tried to create this universe that's like fully practical and, you know, inhabits a space. It's, it's completely different to some of these CGI messes we get. And not only that, but like you mentioned, he, he flies through a wall. We see duck boobs. His first line of dialogue is him talking about how he's about to masturbate to a, pl- <laughs> a play duck bill. I mean, how refreshing is that? You never see MCU films open on someone about to masturbate anymore. And it's highly disappointing. Not yet. Phase Not five yet. is coming. That's <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. Peter Parker just hit puberty, so so hold on. Uh, I, I think that what's He just even... realized his aunt is Marissa Tomei. Like, oh, God. <laughs> um, what I think is it's almost as bold is the fact that they spent, you know, five, ten minutes setting up this world, this very uh, well-crafted, well-developed duck planet, and then they just throw it out the window. I mean, I... I didn't know because I didn't know anything about this movie. I didn't know what the deal was. I didn't know that we were not going to spend two hours in this in this duck planet. So to me, when you introduce it with such care, with so such attention to detail, I'm thinking, okay, this is where we're gonna this is where the adventure takes place. I don't know how Leah Thompson and Tim Robbins show up, but maybe they do voices. I don't know. Uh and then they're gone. It's just gone, and you never see it again. It's it just uh I don't know if that was just uh, George Lucas kind of, uh, you know, he had all that Star Wars money. So he's like, I don't care. Just <laughs> build me a full, a fully realized duck planet. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's only going to be there for five minutes. Uh, I think it just shows such a confidence in storytelling and a willingness to not take shortcuts. It was like, we know mm. that we could just have Howard show up in, on planet Earth. You don't necessarily need to see him uh, in the duck planet before he gets sucked in. But wouldn't it be cool? And, and that's what they do. They they just give you what they know will please the audience the most. So so that was cool. Did you know, Alex, that uh, that this movie took place in planet Earth? Did you were you also surprised that we didn't get to see the Duck Planet again? Uh, I kind of I because I knew Leah Thompson was in it. I couldn't figure out if like she got sucked into his planet or vice versa. So when he you know got transported to Earth. I, I did audibly go, ha, when they showed his planet, it was in the shape of an egg. I mean, if <laughs> dumb humor like that is your bag, this movie is it, it's going to provide laughs by the dozens. And uh, so I kind of quickly figured out where it was going. But uh, that being said, yeah, I kind of was uh, longing for a movie set with uh, all of the duck people just to so I could salivate at the idea of practical effects the entire time. Uh, you mentioned like George Lucas greenlighting something. I just imagine during this time period in '86, basically in my mind, anytime the Universal or who is the director in this, William Huck, uh, Huck, um, anytime they reached out to him, he was just like in a hot tub drinking champagne with like Elton John furry glasses on <laughs> and had whatever like the modern equivalent of a cell phone was at the time. And ha ha ha, yes, do whatever you'd like. 
<laughs> just people bringing him caviar that he's just throwing into a trash can. That's <laughs> very few people in the history of this world have can ever say they experienced the type of wealth that George Lucas did in the eighties. So God bless him. Uh, Julio. So we have been transported to earth here. Uh, of all places, Cleveland, Ohio. Now, again, not knowing the comic book or anything like that, I don't know if that's particular to it. But for us contrarians here, it's a it's a trip back from not too long ago with the rocker. I know. So we're right back in the home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, this um, Cleveland, and there's a you know I hadn't made the connection until you mentioned it now, but uh, yeah, rock and roll plays Cleveland. plays a big part in this movie. So uh, now we know where uh, Rain Wilson got his inspiration from. Well, I was about to say, Julio, you can give us a bit by bit here of just, it's a immediate fish out of water tale. Uh, I mean, almost literally, but it's uh, a duck that's been moved to a planet where he does not know where he is or what's going on. Fortunately, we speak the same language and pretty much everything works the same, but we're just, uh, as he calls us throughout the almost entirety of the film, shaved apes or hairless apes or whatever terminology he uses, but... Howard has made his way to Earth, and he ends up in a nightclub. I can't exactly remember. How how does he come to meet uh, Leah Thompson? Well, he's assaulted when he first arrives by some, some hooligans uh, that look like they should be hanging out with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon uh, in Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> and then they they bring him to the nightclub as a, as a joke, as a, as a gag. She is playing, Leah Thompson is playing at that bar. Uh, yeah. Correct. And that's that's our introduction to her. As we see her rocking out, uh, full 80s, I guess, costuming and, and, and makeup. And uh, Howard's adventures keep going because he gets kicked out of the club and runs into other people. But but Leah Thompson's band is playing through all of it. She's, she just becomes the soundtrack. And I, like I said, I didn't know anything about this movie. I knew very, very little. I certainly did not expect musical Leah Thompson to... To basically be one of the constants here, and, and that was a nice surprise because you know I know her from Back to the Future. Like I said, to me she is Marty, Marty's mom. You know she's Lorraine. She's she's kind of a, a innocent, but also she has like a sexual, a, a, an innocent sexual side to her. And this character that she plays here, uh, Beverly, she's kind of like a couple steps removed from that. So she was recognizable enough as Marty's mom, but also her own character. I I found it really endearing. Uh, I, I was glad that she did not go with kind of the, the stereotypical uh, portrayal of a female rocker, which would be maybe like a, a little uh, uh, harsher around the edges, you know, a little more uh, maybe aggressive towards a talking duck. Instead, she she's still kind of, uh, when she finally meets Howard, she kind of embraces the the weirdness of, of this development, which I, I thought was, was pretty cool. Mm. Yeah, uh, Leah Thompson's singing, by the way. And that was uh, Leah Thompson's real hair. She apparently went through two hours of preparing her hair every day for uh, the movie. So if that's not dedication, I don't know what is. Just just when you think uh, she can't get any hotter, yeah. you learn little <laughs> tidbits like these. She goes from a movie where she tries to seduce her future son to a movie where she tries to seduce a duck. I mean, it was just a, a hell of a run there. Uh, so Sam... Do you have any nostalgia or, I guess, does the whole 80s aesthetic 
bring you comfort. And I mean that from like 80s movies, not like a movie that's made today that's set in the 80s. But watching something like this, the way it's presented and the clothing and everything at the time, which was meant to be cool and not presented as nostalgia. But uh, are you kind of a a dork like me when it comes to stuff like this and it brings you kind of a warming sense to what you're watching? Yeah, there's sort of like a level of innocence and naivety that we sort of had back in the 80s that – you know, you can see in these films, you know, like there's no social media, there's none of that sort of stuff. And it's funny, like you're talking about the aesthetic, like on our podcast recently, we've done Blues Brothers and Roadhouse, one of which is, um, was made in 1980, the other one was made in 88 or 89. And both of those movies had a band playing in a bar and the band was just surrounded by a cage. And we get the same thing in this film, <laughs> which makes me wonder just like how violent people were towards bands back in the day. It's just it, like fills me with curiosity. Well, that's the thing. When you don't have smartphones around, then people feel like they can get away with anything because nobody's going to be recording them. So True. Yeah. The, the 80s were a much more dangerous place. As much as I love the 80s, I'm also fully aware that we are safer now. Yeah, the whole thing with the no cell phones in this too, I was thinking about uh, just Howard's existence. There would be, based <laughs> in this movie, there would be so many people that – would be labeled as crackpots for saying they saw this like talking duck because you know now it would go viral as they say or it'd be on TikTok and here uh Beverly Leah Thompson just ends up getting saved from two assailants by Howard who breaks out is it uh, duck foo quack, quack foo quack foo yep the the play on words <laughs> are not minimal in this film and uh yeah it was I was kind of gracious for this scene because uh, Julio and I have watched several movies from this time period where uh, the male-on-female violence, and it's specifically like an innocent movie, it seemed like there was a heavy reliance on uh, victimizing women. And so to see this here, that it's just these guys that are kind of just like fanatics that aren't lightening up, but at no point during watching this, I don't know about y'all, but I I didn't get uncomfortable and Howard kind of came to save the day at the right time. This movie does a, what I'm trying to say is this movie does a really good job of keeping uh, a really light air about it uh, throughout the entire duration of it. Even in the moments of peril and distress at no point did I find this movie taking itself more seriously than it need to, or creating situations that were way too heavy for said movie. Yeah, you're right. And it is almost like a precursor to the Marvel Cinematic Universe where you, you're watching it and you're like thinking, okay, the hero's in danger, but at no point are you thinking, oh, this guy's going to die. And even when they do die in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you're still like, oh, okay, that happened. And this movie just captures that really well. Like, you, At no point do you fear for the lives of your main characters, so you know you can just sit back, have a good time, enjoy them going through the emotions, and just play it for the comedic value that we've got. Yeah, and I think that the, the filmmakers are very aware of the power that this unusual weapon they have in Howard the Duck because the moment that you put a giant talking duck into any scene you automatically lower the tension but also give give the audience the feeling that anything can happen I mean from the moment that you have Howard the Duck there it's just where is this scene going to go I know that Leah Thompson is not in real danger but I also don't know where this is going at all like did I expect uh, Kwak Fu? No, I didn't. <laughs> I, I I didn't expect uh, them to have any sort of relationship, certainly not the relationship they end up having in the movie. And that stems completely from the fact that he's a duck. I mean, if he was if he was just a guy, then I'd be like, oh, I knew exactly where this movie's going. You know, mm. the guy's going to save the girl. They're going to have a, a, a romance. By the end of the movie, they're going to be a couple. But when you have 
a duck. It's just you've never seen anything <laughs> like this before, and never will. Correct. No. So it's it was it was amazing that even sticking to some scenes that basically are formulaic, but for an '80s movie, uh, they still managed to keep them unpredictable because you never knew where they were going to go. I mean, even if you ever got to a point where you thought that you knew how they were going to handle the character of Howard and his relationship with Leah Thompson, the movie would throw you a curveball and go somewhere else. And I know that as the movie goes on, it certainly uh, kind of shocked me how how far they went uh, with that relationship. So, so yeah, I, I think that they, um, they do a masterful job of acknowledging that Howard the Duck himself is such a wild card that he's an element that can keep the audience uh, on the edge of their seats. Mm, yeah. So stuck in Cleveland, Beverly, obviously appreciative of Howard saving her, uh, potentially her life, uh, invites him back to her place for a place to stay. Uh, we have the classic 80s and well into the 90s and even early 2000s trope of, um, oh, I'm sorry, my place is a dump and it's this fucking massive apartment <laughs> that's clearly like a high rise in downtown somewhere. Uh, we learn that Beverly is the the front woman for the the group Cherry Bomb. Essentially, what happens here is we get kind of an explanation uh, from Howard of what he did. You know, he's a musician, and uh, he's not really sure why he's there. And we get kind of the, I guess you could almost say, kind of a precursor to the manic pixie dream girl here of Beverly, uh, explaining. You know, she believes in cosmic purpose, cosmic connection, and maybe there's a reason you're here, and there's a sign, and there's something here that you're meant to do, and you know, yada yada yada. We we learn here the it sets the table for the characters and their relationship. Um, Cause she starts, she's very nice and kind to Howard, but she still doesn't understand how to approach him. She doesn't, she offered to put like food in a bowl and put it on the ground. And doesn't he say like, <laughs> yep. do you have a beer? <laughs> yep. Yeah. And then when she hands him the beer, because it's a human sized beer, he goes, Oh, giant brewski or whatever. It's so good. <laughs> uh, I'm going to assume that the three of us are on the same page when it comes to the, the Howard, uh, Leah Thompson relationship, which is we're all in. Uh, so my question is not how do you feel about that relationship, but more like at what point in the movie did you realize that you were rooting for these two to get together? <laughs> because I was shocked by how early it happened on my end. Uh, this this scene where they, you know, she brings him over to the apartment and he falls asleep and she starts going through his wallet and finds a condom. <laughs> <laughs> and it looks it looks through his pictures. I was, you know, I was not put off by it. I was I was fully behind her, kind of, uh, you know, rummaging through his stuff and and connecting to him because I I don't know I just found it really endearing and the music like the score was was nudging me along the cinematography that it was you know the, the rain was behind them through the window it, the the lighting was soft I, I don't know to me it was. Uh, it was perfectly designed to manipulate me into rooting for a human female and a male duck to just down the road become a couple. Does this scene affect you that way or did it take a little longer? I, I can totally dig what you're saying. I mean, like, it's hard not to see yourself in Howard the Duck as the character. I mean, you've gone to masturbate, yep. you've been sucked off to another dimension, you don't know what's <laughs> going on, you don't know where you are, you've got no sympathetic um, ear to, like, you know, and, you know, you end up inside a rubbish can, break the fourth wall, 
defend her honor. I mean, I was fully in. Like I could see see the relationship blooming here. I mean, she's had so many horrible, horrible people in her life. She's got a you know dirtbag for a manager, and um, you know Tim Robbins is Tim Robbins, and so she's trying to find something more and something unique. And then she sees this like almost cosmic destiny in him. So it makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. Yeah, and uh, I, I appreciate this movie understanding how absurd it is, and specifically Leah Thompson. Uh, this kind of already bleeding over a little bit into real talk, but the way when she's going through his wallet and then she comes across the condom, which did you notice it was in the shape of an egg? <laughs> no. Yes. <laughs> it's just a loose condom in the shape of an egg. Yep. Well, I was about to say too, it's not exactly safe because it's a loose condom just in his right. wallet, which uh, if we learned anything from Kanicki in Greece, you shouldn't even be carrying a wrapped condom in your wallet. <laughs> uh, but when she finds it, she goes like, doesn't she say like Howard? <laughs> <laughs> like eyes him up and down. And I think this is where she debuts her uh, her pet name or uh, no pun intended, her, uh, you know, kind of coupley name for Howard where she refers to him as Ducky. What am I going to do with you, my little Ducky? And <clears throat> cut to the next day. My note just says Andy Dufresne exclamation point. <laughs> um, I guess that the connection here is that she is friends with Tim Robbins' character in this movie. So yes, for the, for the uninitiated listening at home, Tim Robbins shows up in this movie, and he is a local scientist. Uh, Phil Blumbert, uh, is he call him Philly or Phil or something throughout the movie? Yeah, Phil. Howard eventually develops it. Yeah, he develops a nickname for him, but uh, he's a local scientist, and I, I don't know, you guys might have caught a better explanation than I did, but it just seems like him and Beverly are friends and she doesn't know where to take Howard except to someone who understands, you know, science and the cosmos. Uh, I think he works at like a local museum or something like that. Uh, but he's not even a, a full on scientist. He's a scientist wannabe. I don't think he's even finished school, right? Doesn't he say that he needs to get his degree and then he'll, you know, be a, be a real scientist? N- not uh, be a real scientist. He'll get his own museum. It's like as soon as you complete your degree, they go, here you go, here's a museum. You go, thank you. Like I've said before on this show, uh, the 80s were wild. <laughs> it's true. That was before, you know, Obama fucked over the country. And so <laughs> Good point. Know, it was a, it was a glorious point. time. Those Reagan years, man, they were they were working for us. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> so, yeah, he's just this massively eccentric scientist. And I think what I appreciate about his character in this is we don't know if he's always been like that uh, because – our introduction to him is him meeting Howard and his immediate thought is this guy can like put me down in the history books as like one of the great, uh, with one of the great scientific discoveries of the, you know, the history of humankind. So from this point, moving forward in the movie, he's just basically obsessed with the idea of working with Howard to learn more about his species, his planet, and to bring this information to the forefront. So he, it's not, you know, the Tim Ro- it's not Andy Dufresne. I had that note here, but it's not that type of Tim Robbins. He's just really whimsical and eager and uh, both his character and his- Tim Robbins himself in this movie. Uh having not known he was in this coming into it, this was like blowing my mind what I was watching. <laughs> so this you know, I'm trying to think of more of the Wells kept uh, cameos or performances in the mm. MCU, but this has to be right up there for me. It's right next to uh, Samuel Jackson at the end of Iron Man. Just Tim Robbins showing up in Howard the Duck. Yeah. I would like to talk to you about the, the Duck Initiative. Uh, to <laughs> me, uh, more than blowing my mind, he just kept me off balance because I, for most of the movie, I would say for at least half the movie, I couldn't tell if he was 
friend or foe. I couldn't tell if he had, because like you said, he seems to be looking out mostly for his own reputation. So I didn't know how sincere he was whenever he was trying to, uh, to help Howard, because he basically promises Howard that he's going to figure out a way to get him back home. But I, I couldn't tell because one, it's, I've never seen Tim Robbins be this young and this out there in a performance. So I couldn't read him. I couldn't read him. Is, is he a bad guy? Is he a good guy? And again, going back to Howard the Duck as a kind of a, a wild card himself, once you put him in that scene, you really don't know. I mean, if he was a, a regular human male, Leah Thompson and Tim Robbins, that could probably get a better sense of how I'm supposed to feel about Tim Robbins. But because there's a duck there, I, I just can't really... It, it just I had to wait for the movie to let me know, which was which was pretty exciting. Uh, because usually, you know, when, once you see that they've cast an actor or an actress that you know, you can kind of tell what to expect from that performance mm. and from that story. But uh, in this case, that that was not what was happening. So, I, yeah, I, I was thrown off by, by his presence. Yeah, I'd, I'd basically echo the same thoughts as you. I have never seen him give a performance like this. And when I watched this with my wife, she actually, like, she's not as big a cinephile as me by any stretch of the imagination. But while we were watching it, she was like, is that Tim Robbins? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> after a couple of minutes, she goes, is there two actors in Hollywood named Tim Robbins? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? She's like, is he the Shawshank Tim Robbins and then there's this Tim Robbins? And I was like, no, they're the same guy. The same guy, Stacey. Uh, so quick American sports talk here. Uh, I couldn't find anything about it. I, I didn't do too much research on this because I didn't want to spoil too much of it going in. But he, despite them being in Cleveland, uh, he's wearing a Ohio State sweater here, which is in Columbus uh, or outside of Columbus. Uh, my thought was that the breaking point on the budget was that they couldn't afford for him to wear a Cleveland Browns jersey or something. I just like imagined in my mind that that was a bridge too far for Lucas. He wasn't going to pay for the Cleveland Browns intellectual property to put it in this movie. So they didn't take Howard's his, uh, walking- his Star Wars MasterCard. <laughs> it's like, no, this is no good for you, sir. <laughs> they swiped it. Yeah, in the. Whoever fuck whoever the coach of the Browns was at the time, uh, sir, it's telling me it's declined. <laughs> well, just just swipe it again, just run it through your toy, uh, and so he's walking around with his Ohio State sweater on. They're doing nothing to really conceal his identity, though. So people are like, "Oh, who's this guy?" Uh, kids walk up to him, thinking he's you know some sort of attraction, and what this leads to is. He's not getting the help he wants. He wants to know how to go back to his home planet. And Tim Robbins is interested in, you know, figuring out more about him. And Beverly Leah Thompson is trying to be really sweet, but Howard's just in a place where he has no capacity for that. He just wants to get away. So he tells her, you know, fuck off, leave me alone. I don't need your help. I'm going to be alone. I'm going to go, you know, figure it out. And this somehow puts him. I don't. It cuts so quick. Is he just now at like a headhunting? Is someone just finding a job for him? Was he at the welfare office? I couldn't figure out where the hell he went to. He found a. He found a sassy black woman. Tm. That that gets gets him a job. It it was it was crazy. Prime example of the movie completely blindsiding you with where it was going to take you. It was around this part when you know when he has the big blowout with uh, Leah Thompson that I realized that. This movie might have actually had something to say besides being funny because it's established now firmly that Howard is an outcast and it's established that 
uh, Leah Thompson is an outcast, right? She's like a failed musician, and she's uh, despite being Leah Thompson, she's not successful, and and uh, she's awkward. I mean, when when her best option to help Howard is to bring him to Tim Robbins, then you know that she's not really doing great. And Tim Robbins himself, he's he's also an outcast. He's, you know, he pretends that he's a, a big shot scientist when they first arrive, but then suddenly you realize that they actually treat him like a janitor uh, in that place. You know, the other scientists are, are bossing him around and not respecting him. And then, of course, Howard is just, he's gone from being, I guess, kind of a ladies' man in his planet to just now being considered a a freak of nature here, right? Everybody points at him and treats him like like he's a weirdo, like he's he's an abomination. So to me, to f- suddenly realize that the the three main characters we've met so far have that in common, it, it gave me hope that the movie wasn't just gonna be about making us laugh, which it you know it is, but also that it was going to have something to say about outcasts of the world unite. That's the only way that you're going to move forward. Uh, so that was that was pretty cool. And then, of course, then then we got to the brothel, and I was like, "All right, I, I give up on trying to read this movie." <laughs> Just... Not only that, we get we get the sassy black woman who starts an argument with him, and then says, "I've got a position for you." Then bends over the table, and he immediately goes to bite her on the ass. <laughs> and then the next position we see him in is like again, me and my wife watching it, and she said, "What sort of place is this?" And I was like, "I have no idea." <laughs> and she's like, "Is this the orgy store?" And I was like, "I'm convinced there's no such thing as an orgy store." However, it does look like an orgy store. You're right. <laughs> I just imagine someone taking like you know their six year old kid to this and then having to explain where Howard's working. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even explain it to a fully grown woman. I don't know where it is. I'm a 58 year old man. I still don't know what it is. Is it the orgy store? Maybe. <laughs> But the way it was lit, the first shot, I was like, oh, yeah, that's the strip club from GTA 5. That's what oh, that yeah, is. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I nailed it. <laughs> but, but then there's the mud pit that he pushes his boss into. <laughs> oh, man, I, I, I hate to bleed over into real talk already, but there's a couple sequences in this movie that I was just thinking to myself, they really thought this movie needed to be longer than an hour and 25 minutes. <laughs> and there's these sequences like this that just... So he's... Basically, they employ him to shove him down in the jacuzzis to unclog i don't know the the water lines that get fucked up i don't know what his job is but eventually it ends up to him pushing his boss into this mud pit and saying i quit that's correct his boss pushes him in and he takes like a duct of water except he doesn't take like a duct of water because he can't swim and he almost drowns and then he and then yeah gets gets payback on his boss i was pretty surprised that the movie did not end with a climatic sequence where he had to swim because I honestly thought that that's where this, where this was all heading. Numerous times during the movie, they make a point to remind you he can't swim and and, and he gets in trouble when he gets in water. And uh, but no, that that doesn't. It's it's not so much that it doesn't pay off. It it's just that it successfully misled me into thinking I knew where the movie was going. There's it, it's a key difference, you know. I didn't feel that I had missed out by not seeing that kind of climax. It was just that. Uh, once again, I thought where things were going and the movie proved me wrong. So eventually Howard finds his way back to the club where it all began. And he uh, ends up overhearing a conversation at the bar. He remembered um, Beverly mentioning her manager and waiting to get paid. And Beverly's band is performing yet again. And Howard overhears the manager saying, you know, that uh, he probably uses something derogatory like bimbo or broads or something like that. That they're not getting paid. Long story short. 
Howard roughs him up, gives him the business, sticks an ice pick through his earring, th- threatens to rip it out. Uh, when they, you know, he tries to sick his boys on him. He says he has space rabies, so they better stay away or something bad will happen. Uh, one of his henchmen here is Richard Edson, who um, is a fucking perennial, hey, that guy guy. Uh, but I recognized him. He was the. Um, garage attendee and ferris bueller that takes cam's dad's car out for a joyride so when i saw him i immediately was like i have to figure out what this guy's from and i did and it brought me joy so (laughs) from there takes care of the manager he goes backstage to meet with uh, beverly and the band uh the girls in the band are so surprised like oh you must be howard we can't believe you're real leah thompson looking incredible as in every scene of this movie and phil shows back up tim robbins uh, it's basically just to bring them all back together again. And then in this sequence, uh, Tim Robbins has possibly my favorite line in the entire movie where he's like, I brought pizza and beer. Howard asks him what's pizza. And the way Tim Robbins describes it is it's a circular Italian food object <laughs> that I, I had to write down the exact quote for that because it, it tickled me pink. So the idea being uh, Howard's back with Beverly. They're going to go back to her apartment Uh, Phil ends up taking a a hair or a feather, excuse me, off the ass of Howard. He's going to take it to his lab for research and study. Um, They go back to her apartment, not before he reveals to the band that he got them paid. He gives them their money. Um, This is where we get the, if this exact scene happened today, there would be a lot of people mad. Uh, Who was the... the, um, (laughs) <laughs> the pretty blonde lady that was in the Star Trek movie that they showed in her brawn panties and everyone got all up in arms about it. Oh, Ellis Eve. Yeah. yeah. The, so th- that's kind of what this was here. We get Leah Thompson in her negligee and panties and uh, she's like asking Howard to stay and he's watching her and his eyes are getting wider and he's like, but I have grown an affinity for the, the human female body or something, yep. something absurd. And he gets in bed with her and I mean like – the, the my main takeaway from this was um, in a classic moment of '80s nostalgia that would last for two decades longer. She's like, "Let's watch Letterman." I imagine when they made this, we're like, "We got to put this in." So when people watch it ten years from now, they'll be like, "Oh, remember Dave Letterman?" And he was around for another twenty five years. But or maybe just to put you at ease because you're about to experience I don't know five to ten minutes of hardcore flirting. Almost uh, intercourse between Leah Thompson and Howard the Duck, which I, you, you know, I've heard about people talking about the sexual tension between Leah Thompson and Howard the Duck, and I thought that they were exaggerating. I didn't realize that they were actually referencing a scene where they're in bed, and because, again, this movie has conditioned me to expect that anything goes, and it was the 80s, and apparently the PG rating didn't matter at all. It's like anything could have happened. I mean, I, I honestly thought that because, uh, you know, it ends with her kind of like leaning forward to kiss him. And I thought we we're going to just kind of fade to black. And the implication was going to be that they they did it. <laughs> like yeah. My notes are like, are they about to? <laughs> it, and, and it was, again, kind of a, a introspective moment for me because I realized that I was I was looking forward to it. I, I really wanted it to happen. I, I was like, sick man, Julio. I, mean, I guess I was just living vicariously through uh, through Howard. I don't know. It was it was crazy. I, I honestly, 
I am as much as people talk about this movie, I'm surprised that they don't talk about it more <laughs> because it's this insane. is insane. Yeah. When 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 Alex, when you were saying that people were, would be mad if this happened, I thought you were referring to this to the to the just shameless romance between uh, a human woman and a an anthropomorphic duck. It, it's it's crazy. Uh, oh no, people would be in massive favor of that. I was just referring to the slight objectification of Leah Thompson in today's woke age. Everyone would be all for that. They would be mad that they didn't fuck. That would be what would happen if they released this now. It's such an amazing scene. Yeah, like what, what strikes me the most about this was just how strong she comes on. And Alex, you sort of stole my thunder a little bit from before because I was just imagining when they were writing this movie and they're sitting there with George Lucas and they're talking about this and they're like, okay, we need to find an A-list actress who's comfortable with outrageously flirting in a, like, a very overt <laughs> sexual manner with a duck. And then someone's like... Hey, guess what, guys? I just watched a movie in which a woman tries to seduce her son. And they're like, holy shit. And then George Lucas is sitting there going, well, I made a movie where brother and sister kiss each other, so let's do it. She sounds perfect. Let's keep pushing the envelope. Let's do it. Let's go for this woman. She sounds amazing. It's just Yeah, these conversations every time I just picture fucking... George Lucas and the Joe Frazier, the mink white coat over a red turtleneck <laughs> with the, again, just a bigger pair of sunglasses every time. Uh, but yeah, so, and she plays it off that she's fucking with him, but it's a, it's a hell of a convincing job. <laughs> Some people would pay to hear that shit on the phone, like the way she's talking to him. So she does a good job here. Uh, she does end up giving him like a good night kiss. And then we get like the silhouette of it behind. I, I, for some reason, she has a shower curtain in front of her bed. <laughs> And then the last person you want watching you do anything in bed shows up <laughs> as Jeffrey Jones enters into the equation. Uh, he's there. I don't know who his lackey is, but it's him, Tim Robbins, and a third guy. And Tim Robbins has amazing delivery. She's like, Phil, what the hell? He's like, your door was open. <laughs> so, so me and these two weirdos will come in here. Um just to try to kind of go through this, why Jeffrey Jones and his assistant second lackey, his Smithers, whoever it is that's with him, why they're here, uh, their colleagues, or they at least work in close proximity to Phil, Tim Robbins, they become aware of the feather because it's similar to one that they have. They, they match up and they are scientists that were experimenting with some sort of laser to reach out to another planet and inadvertently pulled in Howard. I think they they go a bit further into detail that doesn't make too much sense, but that's pretty much what I took away from it. They accidentally sucked Howard out of his home planet. Dude, I was still recovering from the Leah Thompson, Howard the Duck, almost sex scene. So I yeah. just, I, yeah. I mean, I picked up the very minimum <laughs> plot points of uh, Jeffrey Jones's story here. But, uh, but yeah, I think you're right. He's basically... He's responsible for Howard being on Earth, and he believes that he can send Howard back, but only as long as they get it done that night, I think, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, which leads to a, a tearful uh, goodbye between Leah Thompson and Howard the Duck that is 100% convincing and uh, yeah. uh, earnest. I mean, you know, she's... Uh, She's saying goodbye. She she looks at the feathers that he's left uh, on her bed, and uh, yeah, let's talk about that real quick. Was that supposed to be like come? Like what was that? Well, it's funny you say that because like like as we discussed, he's basically sitting down to masturbate when he gets like sucked up by these scientists, and then they find one feather. So I'm like, how did that feather come <laughs> off him? 
<laughs> well, is it that vortex? What is that feather they've got? And it, we again, we see him when he's in the bed, and she starts stroking him, and his, you know, the feathers on his head stick up. That guy's shedding. Good that guy's God. shedding. I mean, it, maybe yeah, yeah. I think that's the thing. I think he sheds when he's sexually aroused. Maybe that's the the cleanest explanation. <laughs> Either that, or, or he ejaculates feathers, which is that just the way she like was like. Howard, what is this? I was like, oh God, what is going on? He even says to her, something to remember me by. <laughs> what, alien STDs? Awesome. Cheers, man. So they head off and they're going to take him back to the laboratory, Cyberdonics, or it has some awesome late 80s, early 90s name. I can't remember exactly what it is, but um, they're going to take him to the laboratory, shoot him back off to his home planet. On the way there, we get this rud ridiculous melding of dialogue or more or less monologues where uh tim robbins is basically doing uh brando's monologue from on the waterfront (laughs) about how he could have been a contender and then howard starts giving beverly the of all the the casablanca (laughs) of all the alleys and all the towns i could have ended up in i ended up in yours i was just like watching this with my jaw agape like what the fuck is happening right now yeah i mean i don't want to cut into real talk too much but like they knew they were making a modern classic so they needed to pay homage to all the old classics that have come before it they need to acknowledge the path that it took to make this amazing love story it's the tip of the hat to the to the shoulders that we're standing on absolutely so I'm going to be real with y'all. Like we're like halfway through this movie, but we're going to be able to cover the second half of this movie in maybe 10 Absolutely. Minutes. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> yes. it's not going to take long. So we get to the laboratory and the, the machine, the laser, the mechanism, the, the big, the big deal is all fucked up and it's sparking and something else came through is basically what happened. They, they, uh, an experiment went awry with it and something damaged it, but we know that something came back and here, Julio, I hope you took note of this. Contrarian's oh, favorite yeah. has a, an out of nowhere role where he's just like the uh, hair skewed scientist pointing and explaining what went wrong. David Paymer shows up. Yes. To just, I don't know, validate a movie that doesn't really need it any more validation, but I guess they just threw him in there to, to add some, some gravitas. Uh, kind of a shame that he's just kind of like a one and done. He shows up, gives a couple lines, points at Howard and says, is that the thing? <laughs> and then we don't see him again. I mean, that's David Paymer is rattlesnake venom. Just a little bit will do you. You know, you just got to <laughs> get in and get out. He knows what he's there to do. He doesn't get paid by the hour. So because this laboratory's in shambles, alarms are going off. Naturally, the cops show up. Uh, they see Howard. They immediately take him into custody because they're like, what the hell's going on? They think he's a crazy person in an outfit. Turns out not to be the case. This all leads to... Um, police brutality. Police brutality. <laughs> yeah, they do strip him, and it's kind of alarming. <laughs> uh, yeah, especially at this point where you've got no idea what the movie is going to unfurl on you next. There is a point where you're like, I'm about to see a duck's penis. I know it. <laughs> So this, what this leads to is Beverly uh, stealing a, a cop's gun and as cute as can possible, you know, threatening to kill this cop. She just points a gun at him and uh, her and Howard escape. They are hiding in a stairwell. They overhear the cops. They're like, we got to find this duck, shoot to kill, blah, blah, blah. We get an amazing, never tire of it. The dual gulp where they look at each other and do the big <laughs> gulp. 
What are we going to do now? This movie is, for the second half of this movie especially, is a live-action cartoon. Yep, correct. That's yep. all this is that we're dealing with here. But Leah Thompson knows exactly how to transition into it, right? Because, I mean, oh, yeah. there's nothing cartoonish, and I'm sorry I keep going back to it, but there's nothing cartoonish about her love scene with Howard earlier. But here, you're right. Like They have the double take, and they have the gulp, and the... Uh, just her facial reactions throughout the the chase and the the uh, all the going on with the police they they are uh over the top in a very comedic way but it's uh calculated in 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 a, in a good way right she knows exactly what she's doing which it, it would be so hard like i'm not an actor to begin with but even if i was an actor i would be so lost in this movie because uh the tone is just so specific and so uh unlike anything you've seen before I was like, oh, so I almost fucked the duck, and now I'm running away from the police, and this is happening in the same movie? Okay, <laughs> I'm game. Let's do it. So they escape along with Jeffrey Jones, Dr. Jenning. Uh, we quickly learn that Jenning is being taken over by, let me make sure I get this right, a dark lore overlord of the universe. So... You know, whereas we had something fun and cute come through with Howard through this laser from another planet or somewhere in the universe, this very bad creature came through. Turns out to be the Rancor, but we'll get to it. <laughs> yeah, correct. So something very dark and evil has come inside Jeffrey Jones. <laughs> he's like falling apart. And he's kind of like, uh, who's the actor in the first Men in Black who's falling oh, apart dude, as the movie goes It's along. so scary how in sync we are because, yeah, I have Vincent D'Onofrio on my notes as well. Yeah, good old Vinny D. <laughs> yeah. So they end up... Uh, for some reason, they go to a diner, and this is one of those things that's in some of the 80s movies we've done here and just things I've watched, a comedy trope that has died a death in modern comedy of having to explain everything that happens, explain the joke, and explain you know exactly what's going on, why it's this way. They're at this diner that, for whatever reason, becomes a sushi place at night, and all these country bumpkins are wearing like these rising sun headbands. And there's just one Asian chef in the back. It's utterly preposterous. Uh, it's, it's not just a sushi place. It's a Cajun sushi. Yes. I, I was glad that because I didn't catch the name when they went in. But yeah. after experiencing what that place was inside, I was looking out for the name when they came out. And yeah, it was like Cajun sushi or something. Yeah, Cajun it's, sushi. It's great. That's all the explanation you get. <laughs> exactly. Correct me if I'm wrong, fellas, but essentially this 40-minute set piece exists <laughs> to... Uh, established that uh, Jennings, now that he's been overtaken, he has a very important key card that will provide access to something he needs. He has a piece of a machine, uh, and eventually, after enough times pass, some truckers there try to start a fight and cook Howard, and it leads to Jennings, now overtaken by this power, this overlord of the dark universe, is able to just run them all out uh, with his cosmic powers, and then he takes Beverly hostage. And the card. is basically the most intelligent-ass uh, spin I could add to that. Yeah, what was insane about that was the mob mentality when it comes to cooking Howard. You know, Howard's <laughs> running around and, like, sure, subdue him. We've got what they think might be a crazy kid <laughs> running around in a an outfit. But they don't subdue him. They think, holy shit, let's eat this dude. Like, the, the entire, like, everybody at that diner comes up with the same mentality of let's pin him down, chop him up, eat him. It's just an accurate representation of how Donald Trump got elected. It's just <laughs> all it takes is <laughs> one person having a terrible idea and being convincing enough. 
and then it just it just happens uh to me this set piece uh which yes it's long but i i think it's worth it because it features my favorite i guess running joke or, or extended joke in the movie which is that uh this entity inside Jeffrey Jones is taking over, slowly taking over. And uh, Howard and uh, and Leah Thompson, they're not... It, it takes them really long to catch on to see what's happening. They, they think he's uh, suffering from indigestion at first. And even once they realize that he is uh, kind of possessed, they don't take it as seriously. They don't realize that this is like end of the world kind of stuff. And then even when it becomes clear that it's a serious threat to humanity, they're still kind of kind of more like embarrassed that he's doing this in a diner where there's like a lot of people around <laughs> and it, it's just such a it's such a good like capsule like uh, of of what their characters are like you know again it's like going back to that innocence and and Howard's sense of humor just that uh, they never really panic which I found uh, refreshing you know it's like this entire movie is just like always taking a left when you think it's gonna go right so it's it's great so he takes Beverly hostage, as we mentioned. He takes the uh, truck. I think it's a truck they stole, or a car at least that they stole. And yeah, he's transforming. We get some more awesome practical effects as like these alien tentacles start coming out of his mouth. And he needs power. So at one point, he like plugs into the the cigarette lighter in the truck that they're in, and then he sees some nuclear reactors. Right, yep. that's what where they head. And what's the idea? He's gonna bring the other overlords to Earth. Yeah, I think with that, with that card, right? Like that card reactivates this the laser. Yeah, so the the smart key or whatever they call it activates the laser, activates the teleporter. Um, but he needs to get power, so because he's fading and failing within that human body, so he stops at the nuclear plant and basically just plugs himself straight into a nuclear reactor and then charges himself up, and then he's all powerful, basically. I mean, as one does mm. naturally. So. Tim Robbins re-enters the equation as he's in custody because he knows, you know, what's going on. He knows the he knows the trouble afoot. Uh, they're at the diner. Him and uh, Howard ends up kind of rescuing him or freeing him, and then they find some fucking, you know, Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> yeah, a Randy Quaid in Independence Day level aircraft here <laughs> that they're gonna fly, and. What's the explanation? Why is it there? And they have to rev it up like a fucking weed whacker. I thought it was uh, Tim Robinson's creation. Is that is that not what it was? Because I thought that he said somebody's hobby is going to save the day. And I thought that that meant that he had created the, I guess, you know, this this flying contraption. If, if that was true, then why is he not flying it? Because he lets Howard the Duck fly it. And I think his logic behind that was like, well, ducks know how to fly. You should fly this thing. Right. <laughs> the, the best part about this, this micro flight or light or whatever they're called is that at no point does Howard the Duck ever think to himself, we should pull this up and get this well off the ground so that no one can chase us. Instead, he flies it at about, <laughs> I'll try and use it, I'll try as in America here, between one to two yards off the ground for like the entire way uh, to the place that they're, you know, trying to track down Jeffrey Jones. And what I like about that is like most movies would just cut to him just flying, but instead we get this amazing 80s car chase scene where they're literally flying and chasing in cars as well. I mean, that's phenomenal. It's uh, they're being shot at the entire time. Uh, it was, it was. Uh, I, I thought it was pretty exciting. I the, the moment where they actually take flight because it was sort of a this vindication moment for Tim Robbins mm. because so far he's been such a loser and by now I just realized that he's not the threat. Obviously, the movie has revealed his hand and 
Jeffrey Jones is the bad guy, or at least Jeffrey Jones is possessed by the bad guy. So, so I'm all for Tim Robbins to, to do something good, and and he does. He saves the day somewhat, and uh, I was like, good, you know, the the nerd got his his day on on under the sun. It was it was cool, and it's exciting. It's it's got you know the the ET scene with the bikes when they take flight. It's got nothing on Howard and Tim Robbins Correct. taking off for the first time. It actually takes flight though. This is like the Wright Brothers plane that Sideshow Bob steals on The Simpsons. It's just six feet off the ground. Six feet higher than me, Alex. <laughs> so I'm just trying to understand. Did Tim Robbins like construct this on the spot with scraps in the diner yard? I, I couldn't figure out where the, the craft MacGyver. came from. <laughs> I, I think he had it. He was saving it for a special day. and, and, and They he took came. it out of his back pocket. I got gotcha. you. All right, so yeah, there the chase is on, just like you said, and we get one other classic film reference here that's just kind of, I wouldn't even say shoehorned in, it naturally comes up, as they're flying over like a lake or a pond or some shit, and uh, there's duck hunting going on, and so almost in a dive-bombing effort, Howard goes and knocks these hunters off their boats, and he, did you all catch he's shouting Tora, Tora, Tora as he goes down? I didn't down. catch that. <laughs> <laughs> I did not catch that either. Again, as Sam had pointed out, paying homage to the past because they were laying the groundwork for the future. My note just says, watching Tim Robbins do this rules. Because it was like the part where he's hanging upside down and he's getting dunked in the water over and over again. It's, oh, it's ridiculous. They finally arrive to the nuclear power plant uh, where she's not even a hostage. She's like a comedic hostage at this point, like old spaghetti western tied to the train tracks mm. type. Leah Thompson's tied up and she they run in and you know hey we're here to save the day type thing and Leah Thompson says something like be careful he's in a really bad mood <laughs> again the dialogue written for the first half of this movie is not the same as in the second right. half it's a lot of just really ridiculous cartoony shit Sam explain to me what happens at the end here I have a few notes but like I said the rancor appears what what happens here how do we close my this one movie? note is really big gun yeah <laughs> I, I think that's the best way to describe it is Howard somehow ends up with a really big gun that's given to him by somebody that should probably be using it himself because they know how to use it but instead <laughs> the movie blindsides you again it gives it to Howard the duck who's also driving around in a little like golf cart type you know, things that you see in science research facilities for some reason. Like, basically, Jeffrey Jones is bringing down his boys. They've got four minutes, I think, to stop him, five minutes or something to stop him. And he, he, by this point, because he's been supercharged on nuclear energy, basically become nuclear man, he needs to be stopped by something equally as impressive. And so that's where the gun comes from. Yeah, they get to that that shot where uh, Howard is shooting him and Jeffrey Jones is shooting back at him and the two streams are, are colliding and you don't know which way it's gonna go it, mm. it's uh you know it's a uh, you and mcgregor and uh anakin at the end when they try to use the force <laughs> on each other and it blows them both back well it, and then you get you get howard to make a uh a, a very uh i guess poignant sacrifice because the entire movie has been about him wanting to go back home and then they realize that even though they succeed in getting the alien out of uh, Jeffrey Jones, and then he becomes the rancor, like you said. Which, yeah, he does look like the rancor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> even after they they defeat the rancor, he's still, you know, the 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 other aliens are still coming. So mm-hmm. he's faced with the choice of: uh, Do I destroy the laser, which is the only way that I can get back home, or do I not destroy the laser and just let these monsters arrive on Earth and then see what happens? And uh, 
he wisely does what any of us would have done, and he chooses to, you know, stay on in the planet that has Leah Thompson in it, and just destroys the laser and and almost dies in the process. Which I I found again out of nowhere this very emotional, completely earned scene <laughs> where Leah Thompson is just very concerned for his well being, <laughs> and in a. Uh... I already used the word prescient earlier, but in a scene that laid the groundwork for uh, the future in one of the only great Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, uh, the first Thor, where he destroys the por- the portal to Earth <laughs> at the end of the movie, this is very similar. The only difference is that they didn't make a Howard the Duck sequel where he just went back to his home planet and the only way they explained it was one line of throwaway dialogue. So, Howard the Duck 1, Thor 0. <laughs> I will give it credit as well because there's so many comic book movies that just do the giant beam up into the sky now. You know, that giant evil threatening beam. Yeah. And Howard the Duck is just, uh, you know, just basically cut apart for all those films to follow in their, you know, in his footsteps, basically. <laughs> it, it got there first. It staked its claim. This is where I, you know, once again, I thought that I knew where the movie was going. Uh, I'm like, all right, he saved the day. He's alive. <laughs> Leah Thompson. Everybody made it. Even Jeffrey Jones made it. Now it's like, I guess we're going to cut to just, you know, them being at Leah Thompson's apartment or at the diner. Uh, there is no way to predict how this movie not. ends if you've never seen it. <laughs> nope. It, it, but the thing is, they they laid out the groundwork. We know that she's a musician. We know she has a band. We know what her dream is, which is to play successfully for for a big crowd. And yet, <laughs> I just, I, I, I was surprised. I didn't see it coming. What a joy. Howard the Duck. Absolutely. And I was so glad that we got such an 80s key movie theme song, you know, up there with the Ghostbusters theme and stuff like that. You know, those other themes that have come out. I mean, this became such an iconic crowd pleaser. Still gets played today. It's a thumping hit, man. It's amazing. And like, like you're right. It's a great way to end it. Like we could have had some throwaway dialogue where like Tim Robbins was just like, oh, don't worry. We can build another laser and send you back and forward between your planet as much as you like. <laughs> we didn't get something like that. We didn't get a cheapened ending. We got like a very rewarding ending. Yeah, and it's a a full sequence. It's not a tease. Yeah, it's not that. Oh, he he's kind of pushed on to st- on stage with the, with the band, and then he looks at the crowd, and then he smiles. No, no, no. He gives us a performance. <laughs> he's dancing with Leah Thompson for a solid five minutes. It's 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 choreographed. It's it's just amazing. The only thing missing was a freeze frame. Which we got with the rocker, but we didn't get here. <laughs> I, I thought we were going to get a freeze frame with, with Howard and Leah Thompson on stage. Instead, we got an almost kiss and a tasteful fade to black, which I guess is the next best thing. Mm. Uh, but uh, I, do you guys think that they are a couple now? Is that the implication? Does it look like they've gone on to the next level? I definitely think they're a couple of somethings. But <laughs> She calls him Ducky one last time as we fade to black. They just leave the rest to our imagination. The way it was framed, I couldn't tell if Tim Robbins was playing the cowbell at the end or not. It looked like he was holding some sort of musical instrument. Uh, that was the only thing that could have put it over the top even more. If the internet had existed back then, I can only imagine the amount of... Uh, uh, what do you call the fan fiction that's just exclusively sexual? Uh, <laughs> fan fiction? <laughs> fan fiction. Yeah, was about... <laughs> You had it right the first time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to go looking for it, but I'm sure that there is plenty of stories uh, chronicling the the future adventures and relationships of uh, Leah Thompson's character and Howard the Duck. And uh, 
and I'm not upset by it. It's it's interesting so. you bring that up because I do think that this film has done wonders for the fairy community. In fact, I'd like to know the percentage <laughs> of people that were fairies before this film came out, the percentage that were after. I think this is groundbreaking and it's probably it would be held up there as, as one of their defining moments, really. <laughs> uh, All right, gentlemen. I think we've done uh, Howard the Duck some justice with some uh, ironic uh, discussion, uh, s- sarcastic discourse. Are you all ready to move this along to discuss how we really feel about this movie? Absolutely. Yes, let's go to real talk. I have developed a greater appreciation for the female version of the human anatomy. Oh! Howard, you really are the worst. <laughs> Come on, let's watch David Letterman. Hmm. Come on. Okie dokie. You know, I got a feeling my life's really going to change since you fell into a ducky. Yeah, well... I'm glad somebody's happy. If I could just get my career back on course, I'd only have the old standard worry left. What's that? Just can't seem to find the right man. Maybe it's not a man you should be looking for. Ah. You think I might find happiness in the animal kingdom, Ducky? Like they say, Dal. Love's strange. We could always give it a try. Hmm. Okay, let's go for it, Mr. Macho. All right, I am recording for real talk. But first, uh, a little bit of Patreon stuff. Uh, Alex, you shared with me before we started recording that you don't have any plugs because we uh, were recording two days after our last recording session. So uh, apparently two days is not enough for you to uh, do anything worthwhile with your free time. Uh, and, I did laundry. Yeah, well, there you go. You can you can tell us about your laundry uh, on the Patreon segment. I will uh, expand on my opinions of uh, the second Borat movie, which uh, you must be aware of its existence at least, right, Alex? Yeah, it's uh, it's a movie. Are you, are you planning to watch it, or are you going to protest its existence as a sequel by not watching it? I'm not going to protest it, but I only have so much time on this planet. I'm not really planning on watching a second Borat movie. Like I told you when we talked about it before, I'd I'd rather just go back and rewatch all the Jackass movies before I watch that. <laughs> Sam, what's what's your take on Borat as a as a franchise and Borat as a sequel specifically? Yeah, Borat the original was of its time, enjoyed it quite a lot, like most people did back in that time. The, the most recent one, it's just it's lost its sting. I think the daughter was a nice addition, but aside from that. It wasn't anything too shocking or appealing. It was okay, but yeah. Well, you're not helping my case, but I will do my <laughs> best to convince Alex that it's worth his time uh, in the in the Patreon extended plug section. And also, I will talk about this thing that I just learned uh, about today while I was at work. Uh, I didn't even know that YouTube did these, uh, I guess, annual retrospectives. They're, uh, you know, YouTube reviews. I don't know if you guys knew. They started doing them in 2010. And I guess yep. their videos are kind of like sum up the the YouTube highlights for the year. And uh, uh, this year they're not doing one because 2020, I guess, just sucked so much that they just can't bring themselves to actually put it together. So instead, what's happening is um, just a bunch of YouTubers are doing their own retrospectives and they're like, fuck it. We don't care if uh, YouTube doesn't want to do a review. We are doing our own review, which has led to uh, a whole bunch of really weird videos uh, out there. Uh, 
recapping 2020. So I, I will also talk about that. I don't know that I'm necessarily going to recommend any of them, but I thought it would be a, a, a fun little bit of conversation. Uh, while I don't have anything to plug, uh, I'll do a quick, uh, I guess, tribute would be the right word. Uh, we lost uh, Tiny Lister yesterday. Oh, I which, saw that. Uh, yeah, someone who uh, is extremely niche, but for people like myself who grew up um, with a movie like Friday playing a pretty prominent role uh, in, I would say, more of adolescent, or, um, uh, my teenage years, and then also being a pro wrestling fan and a fan of The Dark Knight. I mean, Tiny Lister holds a place in there, so do like a quick tribute to him and just kind of talk about uh, memories that I'll have of him. I mean, in 62, man, that's a, that's a pretty young age for someone to go. Yeah, I I saw it and it was I was I mean I've seen the Dark Knight I haven't seen Friday but I've seen the Dark Knight and yet my first thought was because uh, of of us doing uh, No Holds Barred my first thought was No Holds Barred it's it's that guy and I couldn't believe that it, he was gone yeah it was, it was that was crazy this is um this is news to me this is yeah La- it mean, was fr- late last night yeah when the news broke that's sad Friday was a movie that me and my mates watched probably about ten thousand times over the space of a month so yeah. Oh, that's that's really depressing. Quite the downer uh, you can expect from Alex in the in the segment. But it's not but a that's downer okay. if I'm remembering somebody and celebrating their uh, what they offered on their time on this planet. So there you go. It'll be it'll be an uplifting uh, retrospective. I was going to uh, say the real bummer is going to come in about thirty seconds after you plug our Patreon and we start talking about Howard the Duck. <laughs> uh, all right. Well. Patreon.com slash Contrarian Prime if, you, if you're curious about any of these things. Uh, and now, Alex, let's go into real talk. All right. Howard the Duck. The uh, the conception, the, the birth of the Marvel Cinematic Universe was released on August 1st of 1986 with a budget of about $37 million dollars. Uh, box office return in the end was just around that. One of the uh, more well-known bombs of its industry. So much so that it is stated in reports of the time at the movie's release that George Lucas had just built the $50 million Skywalker Ranch complex and was counting on this film to get him back in the black. When it bombed, he was forced to start selling off assets to stay afloat. His friend Steve Jobs, the CEO of Apple, offered to help by buying Lucasfilm's newly launched CGI animation division for a price well above market value. Lucas, in desperate straits and thankful for the assistance, agreed. That division eventually became Pixar Animation. So you're telling me there's a, an alternate timeline where Howard the Duck doesn't bomb and George Lucas ends up being the mind behind Pixar or whatever it would be called there. Even more powerful than he is now. <laughs> uh, yeah. Howard the duck directed by Willard Huck. Huke. I do apologize. Mispronouncing his name. He was, uh, one of the people that assisted with the script for the original star Wars. Um, as far as his other, his other directorial credits, Messiah of evil, uh, best defense, and uh, French postcards. And he also uh, was uh, a writer on Temple of Doom. So someone that was, you know, around the Lucas film industry, uh, he wrote American Graffiti. So him and George Lucas go back. back. And uh, he was a writer on this. And, of course, based on the Howard the Duck uh, comic book, 14% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was not nominated for any Academy Awards that year. Uh, of course, 
<laughs> lost out to Platoon. Uh, what would have been Leah Thompson's Best Supporting Actress nomination was lost out to Diane Weist. And, uh, Hannah and her see. sisters? <laughs> uh, exactly. And uh, the Best Adapted Screenplay went to A Room with a View. So criminally snubbed all, all of this. Uh, but it was nominated for uh, what are those called? The Golden Raspberry Awards, several Razzies, which included uh, picture, director, and I think Tim Robbins got nominated for one. Oh, uh, oh. Yeah. what? Worst, or, worst original song, worst screenplay, worst new star. Worst original song? Like the, the banger at the end? Yeah, Howard the Duck. Worst worst visual effects, which that one I take legitimate umbrage with. That can fuck <laughs> yeah. off. Yeah. <laughs> So, guys, before we get into it here, well, actually, let's let's go ahead and take it to the critics. So, fourteen percent means there was at least a couple crazy bastards that were saying something nice about this movie, Julio. What what were they saying? Uh, yes, the, there there's only about fifty reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. A lot of people <laughs> just didn't even bother, I guess, after after Rotten Tomatoes was created. Uh, but I got three fresh quotes, starting with Jay Boyer from Orlando Sentinel, who says, "Reservations aside." It's hard to fold the tongue and bill high spirits of a movie like Howard the Duck. Tongue, tongue and bill. bill. Yeah. Tongue he he was He was the right audience for the movie. Uh, Felix Vasquez Jr. from Cinema Crazed says a fun and fast-paced piece of 80s schlock. Uh, pretty sure we've read quotes before that that used schlock as a as an endearing term. 80s schlock, like that could go either way. Uh, and finally Widget Walls from NeatCoffee.com says, Okay, so I liked it. I am one of five people on the planet. Sue me, all right? Uh, I don't know. There, there, there may be more people in that list by the time that this, this episode is done. Uh, I don't know. Who's going to go first? Who's going to open uh, his heart about their, their true feelings regarding Howard the Duck? I'm happy to. Yeah, I was about to say, Sam's our guest. I'm a... Throw it over to him. I, w- I was just reading just here now. So that box office return where it almost broke clean, only 15 million of that came domestically. So this movie, uh, as we say in the, the wrestling industry when it comes to ratings, who moves the needle? Howard the Duck did not move the needle. <laughs> so uh, Sam, yeah, let's go ahead and start with you. You're our guest. I asked Julio if you picked this. And he said, no, we more or less forced him into it. So uh, I'm curious. And you are a Marvel guy. Uh, yes. And obviously, you're a cinephile, as our discussions we've had uh, numerous times. So where to begin? Sam, give us give us your thoughts on Howard the Duck. That is a lovely way to segue into this, because yes, you guys forced me to watch this. I hadn't. I, I think I'd watched about a quarter of it the first time. I rewatched this on the premise that we would be recording last week. So I watched it, fresh airs, all good to go. <laughs> Since then, I've watched a couple of movies. And so last night, I was like, I don't even remember anything about this film. I was looking at my notes and I was like, what the hell is all this shit? What the hell am I right? Orgy store, what does that mean? So I started re-watching it again last night just to get myself fresh for this. So I have watched it twice within the last like two weeks or whatever. Um, God bless. I know. But here's the thing, like, I'll, I'll try to be as even-handed about this as I can. It, like I'm, I'm a fan of films that are bad, but they don't know they're bad. And so, 
like if you just switch your brain off and you just embrace the insanity it's great and for the first half an hour of this film there's just a level of insanity like coolio mentioned throughout it where you're constantly getting blindsided and you're just sitting there just like what the fuck is going to happen next you're not laughing with the film you're (laughs) laughing at the film like you're laughing at what they've decided is a great idea You're, you're imagining a couple of screenwriters a mountain of cocaine a, you know, an all-night bender. They wake up the next day. Here go George. Go make this movie. George doesn't look at it. He gives it to William Hack or whatever that guy's <laughs> name is that directed this film, and they they just made it. And so for the first half an hour, there's that, and then the film just shits the bed for about an hour, hour and ten. I was trying to watch it with Stacey. She gave up. I I just had it playing in the background. Was writing notes, playing on my phone, doing whatever. This film's dreadful. This film is absolutely dreadful. Wow, strong words. Strong words, Sam Hurley. Uh, I, I'm getting a kick, though, out of just trying to figure out how watching Howard the Duck twice in you know, such close proximity has affected your Netflix suggestions. Now, <laughs> because you watch Howard the Duck twice, you might like this. What what was funniest about this was the first time I watched it was when I was doing an episode for a show and we recently did Catwoman and I was because tr- <laughs> I had the movie Junior Boys on they'd done Dark Knight so we were like let's try and do the antithesis of that I've got something more to say about that to you guys later but we tried to do the opposite of that movie and so we did Catwoman and then I watched Electra and I watched uh, Barb Wire because I was trying to figure out what the worst female led nice. superhero films were because I oh comic book movies were because I wanted to see which one was the worst and then in the midst of all of that was Howard the Duck and as I said for, for half an hour of it it was just like this is kind of enjoyable I don't know what's happening <laughs> but it's kind of good I was babysitting or baby parenting my daughter at the time my wife was up in Auckland have an 18 month old young girl who was driving me ragged and only had like three four hours sleep and I'm like I'm kind of enjoying this but yeah, uh, it's, it's not as bad as Catwoman. That's what I'll say. Like Catwoman has now taken the pole position of worst comic book movie I've ever seen in my entire life. And this, yeah, it's not as bad as that. You know what could have made this worse uh, is if one of the original people in the running for the role of Phil, the role that went to Tim Robbins, had gotten the role, and that man was Jay Leno. <laughs> <laughs> uh. That's... Uh, that would have been pretty rough. Um, you were talking about Sam, how, like how did this get made or what the thought process was going into it. One of the things I read about this that I took note of that really made me laugh uh, was uh, where'd it go? Following a test screening, Universal executives Sid uh, Scheinberg and Frank Price were allegedly arguing about who was to blame for green lighting this film, and it ended up in a fistfight. <laughs> <laughs> The fucking 80s. And then the other big note I had, and then Julio, I'm going to throw it over to you, because I think our takes made... It's going to be an interesting uh, potpourri here. Uh, This just blew my mind. In uh, in October of 2017, a 70-millimeter print of the movie was screened at the Egyptian Theater's Beyond Fest, with over 400 people attending. Leah Thompson, who attended the screening as well, said the event was better than the initial premiere of the movie. So this means that in this world, there is a 70-millimeter print of (laughs) Howard the Duck that can be seen by human eyes. And I will, before I die, see that 70-millimeter print of Howard the Duck. I... I like I had to read it three times to make sure what I read was correct. <laughs> All right, Julio, your thoughts. 
Just uh, in a nutshell, and then we'll dive in bit by bit of uh, you know actors and whatnot. Uh, in a nutshell, I I agree with with Sam, and I think I got the feeling from you too, Alex, that it goes downhill quick. I I, I don't think it it happens that early. I wouldn't say the second half. To me, is just the third act. Uh, I mean, I think that yes, halfway through the movie just abandons. Uh, you know, it becomes more of an action comedy mm. instead of a comedy with some action in it, and and it hurts it. Uh, to me, the third act is just. It was still making me laugh, but it, it's really I lost interest. Uh, that said, I wouldn't call this a bad movie. I actually enjoyed it. I was not laughing at it. I was laughing with it. I think the movie wanted me to laugh when I was laughing. I kind of echoing what I was saying in Contrarian's Corner. To me, it's pretty bold. I don't know if, if re-watching it, I would get the same feeling. I might, you know, right now I'm just, I, I think I have a lot of high on it just from not knowing what to expect. And it surprises me so much. Uh, I think I was expecting more along the lines of a generic 80s comedy. And everything I'd heard about Howard the Duck made me think that it was just nonsense, but not uh, intentional nonsense. I thought it was just like, oh, a lazy movie. It was like a, a, a kind of like a cash grab made by people that did not understand what the appeal of the character is. And to me, I mean, not being familiar with the comic book character, though, just knowing its reputation as like, oh, kind of like an adult-oriented comic book, it kind of feels like these people, the people behind the the movie, actually knew what they wanted to do and just just took a chance on making this really weird movie with uh, a lot of adult humor, yet starring an animatronic duck. Not animatronic, but, you know, like a... (laughs) physical uh it's a person under there motherfucker <laughs> but but the what do you call the the mask you know it's like it's not a person doing the duck expressions but you know his eyes emote <laughs> uh animatronic mask i guess is what you would call okay, it. okay so, so it's kind of an animatronic duck cyborg skynet <laughs> it's a cyborg <laughs> okay Cyber this is the cyborg this hybrid of animatronics and in in human being uh it's just such an out there. It was. It, it really was. All kidding aside, it was such a breath of fresh air. It does not hurt at all that I think that Leah Thompson is in top form here, and not just as in like oh she's super hot, but also uh, like I said, Contrarian's Corner. Her comic timing is on point, and even at its most uh, unengaging, you know, when it was just like mostly action set pieces and whatever, they would keep throwing funny lines here and there that was like this is this isn't just funny it's witty (laughs) which i was not expecting wit from howard the duck so i'm aware that a lot of my uh just my positivity is coming from just being pleasantly surprised going in with the lowest of expectations because i really thought this was gonna be a train wreck you know you're talking about Catwoman. i was i was bracing myself for that kind of uh yeah. Of experience. I thought I was going to cringe through all the humor, and instead, I would say 90% of the humor worked for me. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm walking away with it, like, liking it. I, I Far from perfect, but it would be, I mean, we're not even in 2021 yet. And yet, Alex, I, I think this is a strong contender for just a major sweep at, the, at next year's Embrys. My God. I know. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far yet, but gentlemen, I pulled up here after watching this movie and preparing for this um, 
podcast, the Wikipedia, I mentioned this in the first portion. I pulled up Wikipedia, the page that pulls together, like on the aggregate, the movies that are commonly recognized as the worst movies of all time. A couple of these we have done for the podcast. Geely, um, Battlefield Earth, amongst others. Uh, and having seen some of these, this movie, Howard the Duck, does not belong in the same breath as Showgirls or Striptease or, uh, Jesus, Freddy Got Fingered. What else is on here? <laughs> the Room. I've talked to, Hulu and I have talked about The Room extensively. Uh, we are not in the crowd that finds it fun to watch that movie. It's just hard to watch and it's... It, <laughs> <laughs> Nothing really redeeming about it. I, I, I've like uh, I've said also on the show. To me, the fun is hearing people talk about it. That's yeah. to me. That's the, the the redemption part of it. It was like I don't want to sit through the room, but I listen to people talk about the room for two hours. It's it, that I found more entertaining. I I am one of those crowd that absolutely loves the room. It's one of those films that I I honestly it's like. Do you want to watch Schindler's List again? Nah. Do you want to watch the room? Yes. Fuck yes. I'm in. I'm doing. I'm keen. Well, Let's surely there's like less extreme options. Oh, you know what I mean. Do you, like, do you want to watch this yeah. critically acclaimed darling of a film? No. Do you want to watch the room? Yes. It's like again, and this is sort of like the first part of the. Um, the film for me is like there's just something in the level of preposterousness where you're like none of this shit makes sense and I love it like it's just so off the wall and the room is that I mean I actually got to interview Greg Sestero play you know is in mm-hmm. the film and I was like this is like a dream come true for me because it's such a spectacular like a massive spectacular fail and at the same time there's like there's movies that try to be so bad it's good and there's nothing worse than a film like really trying for that label Whereas there's films like this where they're like, yeah, they're bad, but they're so enjoyable. And that's what I really liked about it. Yeah, and that's I appreciate you bringing that up as far as you know choosing over critically acclaimed. Because I was thinking just in terms of movies we've done, critically acclaimed movies we've done, that I would choose to watch Howard the Duck over before again. Like The King's Speech. Mm. Uh, I mean, obviously got to throw in a burial of American Hustle. Um, <laughs> I think Green Book sucks, but if we were talking you know, strictly on a critically acclaimed uh, you know awards and you know a tomato meter type thing that would be a critically acclaimed movie that i would absolutely rather watch howard the duck instead of um howard the duck is a bad kids movie that's a half hour too long that's basically what i came away with it is and yeah i don't know after listening to julio's thing i don't even know if i'd call it bad more than it is just disjointed it's a half hour too long that's that is yes I, i can't dispute that the action sequences the the chase scene with the plane goes on way too long the scene in the diner goes on way too long but there are things in it that i appreciate the preposterousness of uh, like i talk about disjointed like the when they ape the dialogue from on the riverfront tora 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 casablanca that's so weird and like (laughs) just out of nowhere (laughs) and uh and there's things like that throughout it that just exactly what you guys have been saying that it's like what is going on and then in the second act or second half excuse me and especially in the third act it becomes like a formulaic like i said it's like a live action cartoon but throughout that some of the dialogue remains consistently funny for me i like audibly belly laughed at the scene when they're in the diner and uh so she brings out the food and then howard freaks out because there's eggs on it he's like ah and so she takes him back 
and Jeffrey Jones is sitting there while they all take Howard away and they're about to kill him. And uh, Beverly runs up and is like, you got to help him. And he looks down and he goes, she took my eggs. Like that, <laughs> I audibly like belly laughed at that. And the, when they're driving and he's like, there's something inside me uh, deteriorating my organs and yeah. replicating. or yeah. something. And she's like, well, we'll find a bathroom. Uh <laughs> A lot of that, and I cited in the first half that he's in a bad mood. The that shit wouldn't work if like the comedic timing wasn't there, and um, I think that's as good of an opportunity to bring up like Leah Thompson. So much of why this movie works is because she's giving such a genuine effort. Mm, I, it's yeah. it, the movie's as old as it is. It's older than I am, so I don't. I don't know, and I'm sure. She's been asked a million times, and I'm sure she's done interviews where she's spoken on it a million times. But like the idea of like, is she in on it? Is she like hamming it up intentionally? Who knows? But what I do know is it makes it a hell of a lot easier and more fun to watch with the way she plays the character in this movie. And uh, like Julio said, it doesn't hurt that she's like god tier hot in this movie. Um, speaking of audibly, at the end when she went into the splits while playing guitar. I yes. literally went aloud. Oh, like I just said, like <laughs> I needed like a moist towel to dab my forehead off with but uh, that. Um, I, I think, yeah. And again, like I said, it's, it's hard with everything that's happened. It's, you know, not defending Jeffrey Jones or trying to act like he's a good person or anything like that. It's like we talked about in our Beetlejuice episode. Uh, but, with him and Leah Thompson's performance and especially Tim Robbins all bringing like a genuine effort to it. That's something we talk about all the time on this podcast. There's nothing worse than watching a bad movie where you can see the actors don't fucking care Mm -hmm. and don't want to be there. And with this, it's like, well, everyone in it's at least is trying and it looks like they're having fun. So this is a lot easier to get invested in. Yeah. Even I would go like a step further. It's not just that they're having fun in Leah Thompson's case, she is a hundred percent committing to caring for this fake co-star that she has. She tears up a couple of times when she's talking to Howard in the movie, and it did not feel uh, contrived. You know, I was watching; it was like it makes sense. Like I bought into that relationship, not to the extent that I was joking about in Contrarian's Corner, right? But, but still, I, I really—that's a hell of a performance. I mean. Uh, the animatronic mask, I think it's fantastic to begin with, right? Because she could be the greatest actress ever. And if she's not getting anything from from uh, Howard himself, then it would be really hard to buy into. But the the mask is great. Like I thought it was very expressive. And uh, uh, really, don't say that I talk shit about uh, practical effects all the time, Alex, because I will give... I was just about to say, <laughs> like, you're making the, the opposite point or you're playing into my point this is the shit i was talking about in dr strange where rachel mcadams is terrible because she's like supposed to be acting at a tennis ball against a green wall like this is exactly what i'm saying she has something to play off of here and it works for the better okay so just to clarify what i'm saying is that the cg is still good cg can be good just like you know practical effects can Can be good but what i'm saying is that when you're looking at the screen like i'm not talking about Leah Thompson's process, but more about like what we see on screen. Because if we were watching on oh, screen okay. uh, a mask, you know, a duck mask that doesn't really emote, then it doesn't matter how much she emotes, it would feel fake. But when I watch it, 
it's it's two things that are working really well. Howard's mask, which is great, it looks like it's alive, and then and then Leah Thompson, who looks like she really cares for this for this duck, uh, is preposterous. Like when you put it into words, <laughs> it sounds like it shouldn't work, but when you're watching it, they're happening. I'm like. I'm, I believe it. She's sad. She's gonna miss him. <laughs> she's she she really believes that he's dead and, and she's heartbroken. I mean, that's uh, it's not recognized enough. I think when people talk about it, that, that Leah Thompson, you know, it's like ah ha ha. She almost she almost had sex with Howard the Duck, but they don't talk about how she actually, you know, acted the hell out of her scenes. That's uh, that's pretty impressive. And yeah, it goes back to actors really taking it seriously, which I I do agree with when it comes to something. With the room, right? Like Tommy was all like, he is a hundred percent committing to his character in that movie. You can tell that he's taking it seriously. You can't say that he doesn't commit. Uh, I was thinking- Geely is an example of a movie we've done where it's oh, yeah. like, with the exception of what's that guy's name, Justin Bartha. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's a bad movie where actors are sleepwalking through it, thus making it even worse. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was thinking this reminded me a little bit, uh, especially with the plane sequence. Uh, reminded me of Hudson Hawk which gave us kind of like a similar <laughs> threw us for a similar yeah. loop where we went in expecting a train wreck based on everything we had heard. And then we're watching and it's like, wow, Bruce Willis is a hundred percent engaged in this movie. He's, he's actually, uh, you know, trying and, and it, it was, it was way more fun than I, than we expected. And this was again, something like that, you know, where, uh, the commitment from people in front of the camera and behind the camera was, was palpable. And that was, that was positive. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I to backtrack. I hate to be mean about Doctor Strange because that's one of the movies that I, the one of the Marvel movies you made me watch earlier that I actually really enjoyed. It's just to <laughs> to your point exactly what I was saying. It's I think in certain situations when you over rely on CG and you don't have something in front of the actor to react to, it can sometimes stunt uh, their performance. But. Um, before we move into like the legacy of this and what the future could hold for Howard the Duck, uh, two things I wanted to hit on. Uh, first, Tim Robbins for you know a rookie year, uh, a rookie performance. I think he had done he had been active one year prior to this, two years it looks like. This was his fifth movie, but I don't know if he had a, a real billing in any of the previous ones. Um, there's something so fun and intoxicating about watching this. And we talked about this in Contrarian's Corner about someone who became a highly celebrated actor, uh, you know, multiple time award recipient and someone who is regarded in his field. Watching something like this where he's clearly giving it his all and he's good in it. It's just, you know. Johnny Depp and Nightmare on Elm Street, like that type of thing. It, there's there's something so nostalgic about it that like I almost feel like I would recommend this movie to someone just to be like, man, you got to see Tim Robbins in this. Yeah, the sphere. Yeah. I'll be like, you have to see Leah Thompson in it. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel, Sam, about the about Howard the Duck himself here? Because I I think that that is key in in I guess how you experience the movie. Well, he's a man of many different levels. It's it's phenomenal how much he changes from one scene to another. You know, like he's amazingly horny for Leah, and then and within seconds later he's not. And um, you know, he's like like confident. He's got quack foo. He can kick the shit out of people. And then the next scene he gets his ass handed to him. He's a, r- a real dichotomy of this character. But I mean, like like what you guys are saying, like this film lives or dies on its main leads. And 
by and large, he's not that bad. Like, as you said, it's a curiosity, it's an oddity, it's something new and different, and you're sort of watching this character try and grow and adapt, and it's it's kind of interesting. But, I mean, yeah, like, Leah saves this film, really. Like, she, she gives a, yeah, one hell of a performance and sort of elevates him in a lot of ways, I reckon. So, I guess my question would be, we talk about the absurdity. I think uh, I I kind of enjoy the second half of the movie a bit more than y'all. You guys kind of cling to the first. But can we all agree... Uh, Sam in particular, the way this pays off, isn't it only logical that it pays off in an original song about Howard the Duck where he ends up playing a red guitar? <laughs> it, it legitimately feels like the most sensible part of the film, yes. <laughs> uh, how do you... How Well, I know that we kind of touched on it in Contrarian's Corner, but... Do you have an affinity for for eighties movies now that we're in real talk? I yeah. I haven't seen Blues Brothers, so I haven't listened to that episode, and I haven't seen Roadhouse, so I haven't listened to that episode of your show either. Um, but you know, because I I think that also a, a tolerance for, at the very least, a tolerance if not an enthusiasm for eighties aesthetic kind of helps you get in the wavelength of this movie. I really think, yeah, you're right, because, I mean, I am born in 1982, so I was kind of not really of age when 80s films were all popular sort of thing, so I very much grew up in the 90s, and by the time 90 movies were around, you know, everything had a hummer in it, there was lots of explosions, all that sort of stuff, it was like, you sort of went back and watched the 80s movies, and they always felt quite dated, but that being said, like, all the indie films, um, indie films and, like, Star Wars films and all that sort of stuff, they were very much my... They're very much my jam, but at the same time, they weren't really set in the 80s, so they didn't really have the 80s aesthetic. But re-watching, I mean, first time watching Blues Brothers, actually, I'd never seen it before, watched it, enjoyed the hell out of it. Roadhouse is another film that is so preposterously bad that it's amazing. I almost gave it a hyperbole sandwich. It's just so insanely stupid, and there's so much stuff in it that, like, like, like this film, there's so much stuff that happens, and then about six minutes later, you're like, wait, did, did I see a pair of duck tits? <laughs> it suddenly hits you like Roadhouse is like that like minutes later you're like wait a minute but um yeah I mean it's I wouldn't say 80s films are my sort of go-to um uh, but I, I'm starting to develop a bit of an affinity for them especially 80s horror because it's amazing living in the like I'm a big horror fan and a lot of the horror films that we watch nowadays you don't realize how much have lifted from really one of the golden ages of horror which was like the late 70s and during the 80s so yeah agreed <laughs> I figure you would, Alex. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that the... I mean, I grew up in the 80s as well. And uh, I don't have the love for for 80s movies. I mean, we, we talked about this a little bit during our Stranger Things episode, but uh, I don't have that, that that passion for it that that real 80s lovers do. But I can mm. recognize the the high marks and the... the uh, you know, just the markers in general of, of 80s aesthetic. And in in this case, you know, I was watching it and it's not that there's a direct line of comparison, but I was thinking of something like The Goonies, right? Or it, it's, you know, the kind of like, uh, I don't know, that feel of adventure, and but also like ridiculousness and comedy. And it, I don't know, it's just like a special blend that, you know, you can kind of, that a movie can get away with sometimes just by saying, well, it's an 80s movie. And yeah. I think that I got that feeling from Howard the Duck and that put me at ease whenever the movie might have started to slip where I could just go, well, it's an 80s movie, right? Oh, it's this diner sequence going on forever. 
well, it's an 80s movie, so they have to be like super <laughs> silly. You know, I, I think that that helped me also just, uh, I don't know, get through it. But but thinking about it, I think like the other thing that I wanted to talk about or, or, or touch on is just that no matter how much I like it and how genius I think it is at times, I can't imagine, I don't know how you sell this movie, especially back then. Like now that we're a little more hip with, with just like bucking expectations and, uh, you know, throwing curveballs to the audience, I, I can maybe see how somebody could could present this project, this movie as an avant-garde uh, subversion of the of the comic book movie genre. But back then in like, in the mid eighties, I don't know how you tell somebody how you convince investors to put money on on a movie about a duck from another planet uh, that comes to Earth and I don't know, you know, starts a relationship with this rocker and there's a monster. I don't know. It's like that. Feel, it feels to me like it's. Uh, there was no way for this movie to succeed, and I, I, I don't know that I agree with you, Alex. I don't think it's a kids' movie. I think it's, no. it's, uh, I think it's an adult movie. I think it's a movie for grown-ups more than it is for kids. It just, you know, uh, plays with the the conventions of a kids' movie. I guess you know, kind of like an adventure movie. But to me, it's it's aimed at adults, which makes it even harder to sell because you know you're selling at an adult movie where the main character is a duck. So it, it's just I mean, weird. Clear, it, Felt like clearly the idea would have been to appeal to kids though, just with the idea of the duck. I think the humor and the like, the story and what you're expecting the audience to keep up with as much or as little coherence as there is more geared towards adults. But I, I don't know. I thought the whole. It seemed to me the idea was hoping that you know kids would come to it, and that's why there is some of the absurd humor. Bring the kids, uh, but then enjoy the movie yourself, parents. I was about to say, come for the duck, stay for Leah Thompson. Yes. Uh... <laughs> in some ways, it's almost like an like a, a more mature vision of ET. You know, it's this weird character yep. coming to Earth and forming a bond, and you know, people are out to get him. Yeah, yeah, but but ET never tries to hook up with Elliot's mom, so that's really what. There that was a deleted scene. <laughs> 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 his his glowing finger yeah, glowing had, had more than one use. Uh, <laughs> well, it's like if you made the Howard the Duck movie today. You wouldn't aim it at kids, no. It, uh, I, I think. No, if they, yeah. God damn it, Julio, you're moving in on my territory. That was going to be my next. Well, what do you think about this? Oh, go for it. Uh, <laughs> well, what do you think about this? Uh, it's, I was going to say, just putting an end on that '80s thing. To me, it's not even '80s nostalgia. It's just so nice watching a movie that was based in the time period that the movie was made in. Seems like that's something we get farther and farther away from now. Everything has to be. In the future or in the past. Yeah. Gentlemen, uh, with Howard the Duck, like Julio started to go into there, if it was made today, you would almost have to do it like a Deadpool type thing where it was the R-rated comic book movie. Uh, Not just necessarily for violence, but I I imagine if they tried to – well, Sam, let's go with this. Do you think there's any gold in them, Thar Hills? Do you think there's any purpose – into trying to rehash and make Howard the Duck a feature-length film again. Well, it's funny because we've been talking about how um, this was quite a, you know, like leap of faith, and you know, obviously it was a bit of a trailblazer. And a lot of people said the same thing about Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, they were little-known Marvel characters that were never the forefront of the Marvel, you know, readers or anything like that. And when they pitched the film, it's like we have a talking raccoon, we've got a talking, or it says three words, we've got a talking tree. You know, we've got one human character in it. Like this is really out there and weird and bizarre and sure enough how the duck pops up in that 
And I feel like Guardians of the Galaxy, and you're right, like Deadpool, um, some of these R-rated films, are the ones that could pave the way that there would be an audience for this film. That being said, I mean, you know, Captain Marvel takes over a billion dollars, Black Panther takes over a billion dollars. I'd be surprised if Howard the Duck would take over 300 or 400 million. Like, it's going to coast on that Marvel factor. I feel like they'd have to team him up with a popular character just to get him, you know, like that next level sort of thing. Like, would have to have a four in there or Hulk or something like that, just inexplicably, but, you know, Marvel's good at that. Oh, my God, I'm shitting on the MCU. What have you done to me, Alex? (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like we'd, yeah, I feel like they could, whether it be a success or not, I mean, who knows? Who knows? I Do you think that uh, an R-rated Howard the Duck movie would actually have him had sex with you know the the Leah Thompson character whatever ends up being in in this incarnation oh yeah absolutely he would definitely be laying more than an egg <laughs> hey well but the problem the inherent problem at least for people like me and the uncanny valley folk if they made it now he would almost guaranteed be completely cg wouldn't you think yeah yeah yeah, yeah. That could be, though. The thing is, I would imagine, if you're making a Howard the Duck movie, though, you don't have to really uh, conform to anything that's currently going on in the Marvel Universe and the Marvel movies as far as, uh, you know, this is how we make them, right? And they, they've developed uh, a look for Marvel movies. And so, yeah, I think that if you got practical effects in a Marvel movie right now, if you had a Marvel movie that relied on practical effects, it would stand out. It would feel like it doesn't mm. really fit. Uh, but with something like like Howard the Duck, or the even fuck like, is this? <laughs> uh, something like Howard the Duck, or even you know Deadpool. I think that their characters that that's a pretty good uh, comparison, I guess, Alex. You know that their characters that lend themselves to be outside that mainstream, that Marvel mainstream, and just do whatever they want. I mean, if if Deadpool, uh, you know, star, if the next Deadpool movie was kind of a, a horror movie that's all about, you know, practical effects and, and gore, you'd be like, all right, you know, I don't need Deadpool to fit in the Marvel universe. And the same thing that I think that uh, people would be given to, would be willing to look past Howard the Duck, let's say, being a completely practical special effect and not CGI if you made a Howard Duck movie because you're not really expecting him to team up with the Avengers, you know? I think it would be just yeah. this this kind of weird practical effects corner of the Marvel Universe. And, you know, I don't know, maybe you'd team him up with Rocket. <laughs> yeah, Rocket, yeah. Uh, I think um, I honestly, you know, to kind of give the the MCU... It's propers, I guess, for uh, an idea that ended up uh, monopolizing the game and uh, kind of just taking over the world. I think there's something kind of romantic and poetic to the idea that the first theatrically, the first theatrical film based on a Marvel property is this infamous bomb. I think kind of <laughs> leaving it like that, and I think there's something kind of cool to that idea. So I, I don't know, I assume I, I would be surprised that if in the next 10 years there wasn't some Howard the Duck movie that came out but at the same time who knows it's they got so many fucking irons in the fire that mm-hmm. they may just kind of leave this this egg lay for lack of a better <laughs> expression um I think yeah we covered our bases the the selling points Leah Thompson practical effects 
why not? Those are like the three things I would tell someone in, that would think about watching this. Tim Robbins. Don't forget uh, Tim Robbins. Yeah. Tim Robbins, yeah. The only the only thing that sort of like sticks out about this for me is just the fact that we don't get introduced to what is the villain of the film until about an hour in. Like if they'd <laughs> Yes. You know, like he's this dark overlord that sort of gets ham fisted in at the end. Like if we'd if we'd had plenty of other opportunities to have a villain, like the band manager could have been the villain. He could have come back and wanted some sort of retribution or the sassy black lady that <laughs> he was gonna bite on the ass. There was plenty of other people that or you know, even the guys that run the museum, like if they'd just taken out that dark overlord part, you know, they they probably could have told a very condensed and probably not as hated film, I reckon. I I think if if I were to put my uh, my screenwriter hat on, and I did think about this when we got to the end, right? Because yeah, that 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 last the, the third act is just kind of punishing with just how frenetic and, uh, like a better word, soulless it feels. And then you get to the point where he has to make the big decision, right? Oh, Howard, if you destroy this, then you never go back to your home planet, and it works about as much as it does because if nothing else, they've repeated throughout the movie that. He needs to get back and he wants to get back. But I was thinking, we haven't seen him have any sort of emotional connection in that planet. You know, it's like we saw all the in-jokes and the posters and whatever, but there was a voicemail from his mother, I think, right, in the in his house. But I didn't, I didn't really feel like he was truly missing out on something big, uh, something dear to him by choosing to destroy the laser and not going back to his home planet, which is weird, right? So if I were to do a new Howard the Duck movie, if I were to redo this one, if I were to just, you know, work with this structure, I'd be like, no, you need to give him something that he really cares about. What if he actually has a family? What if he has like a wife or a kid or something in, in Duck World? And then when he has to decide if he destroys the laser, uh, you know, and saves the planet or he wants to, you know, let Earth go to hell so he can go back. Then it carries more weight. I mean, is that just too too much drama, too much seriousness for a movie like Howard the Duck? Maybe, but it would have for this movie we watched. Yes, <laughs> yeah, but it all, would have hit me harder. <laughs> all I can think, Julio, is we we see his like his parents, but at the same time we get like he there's a postcard to him from some girl that he slept with. There's a woman that leaves a Randy answer phone message for him. And, and then he's like getting offers left and right, but he's choosing to masturbate at the start of the film. So clearly he's <laughs> slayed every single duck on his planet, and he's like, shit, I've got to move on to new ones. <laughs> That's true. Uh, God bless. Uh, so winding down here with Howard the Duck, as we always do our ratings, Julio, what would you give this movie? Uh, I'm, I'm sitting at a very comfortable three and a half. There was a point. In, while I was watching the movie during the first half, I was like, wow, this is a four star at least. They're going to hate God. me. <laughs> is that uh, three and a half out of 10 or 20? <laughs> <laughs> no, three and a half out of five. I'm, I'm going on the letterbox. Uh, wow. I guess, uh, rankings. Um, yeah, three and a half, dude. It's it's, it's good. It's uh, To me, it's above average. Uh, it, it, it's And above average even sounds like it's uh short selling what makes it special i i would just i would tell somebody you know you need to watch this movie because you are not going to see anything like it and this is not in a bad way i know that there's a way to sell it where you're like this movie is so bad you've never seen anything like it but i'll be like yeah. it's just so crazy it and it actually works so yeah three and a half uh i am not gonna go with that insane 
Uh, I was going to say, I Sam, I go on an A, B, yeah. uh, C, D, F scale. I would give it a C minus uh, in that it's – I think that a lot of that too, my goodwill with it is coming into it thinking it was a lot worse than it was. It is disjointed and the, the length of it is a real killer. But there is some good in it and it is something I would recommend. And it is something I wouldn't mind watching again, but still I, I, I can't – overlook a lot of the things or uh, be as kind to some of the things as you are julio so i'll give it a c minus uh sam i'm not sure what kind of grading skill you go on but uh what would be oh, your dude, closing he does thoughts like on it thousands ten thousand we do <laughs> oh. out of ten thousand but i'll i'll, I'll stick that's to, right that's right yes that's correct but I'll, I'll stick to the letterbox one i'll stick to the letterbox one i mean yeah like you're right alex like some ladies love duck length but i'm not about the duck length in this one this is <laughs> this is all about i'd say like there's so much to enjoy, but there's so much that's horrible. So it's a two out of five. It's a it's a it's like a reasonably enjoyable film, and I'd love to see Julio's pitch for a sequel of Aaron Duckovich, where he sues his fucking <laughs> employer that pushed him into the <laughs> bloody spa pool when the two people are in there having sex. But I don't think I've watched it twice. I don't think I'm ever going to watch it again in my entire lifetime. But at the same time, if somebody walked into my house with a gun and was just like, "Hey, you got to watch this," or even like you mentioned, Alex Green Book, or um, oh, fuck, what was the other one you mentioned that I'd, I'd King Speech, King Speech, or American Hustle? I'd, I'd pick that one over those three. Yeah. My God, what a discussion! I didn't kill as much of my credibility as I thought I would. Uh, all right, that was Howard the Duck. Julio, what is next? for the contrarians what is next is oh our final episode of 2020 how are we closing 2020 down what well, we didn't even get to choose because this is our first ever uh patron pick from uh katie and ot they were generous enough to give us a very high rated movie whiplash which yes we've both seen but we've never really talked about much other than i guess the the Oscar aspect of it, uh, J.K. Yeah. Simmons winning. That should be a good, uh, a good episode. How do you feel about Whiplash, Sam? Oh, I hate the film at the moment because he got me on to do this shit, not that. Fuck you guys. <laughs> <laughs> All your Marvel knowledge would have gone to waste. Eh, well, I mean, you could have made some some comments about Jonah Jameson. J- yeah, an and and Mr. Fantastic. Mr. Fantastic. Oh, oh yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, Van Forstick. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, you know, you can still like comment on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I will. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's that's next. And uh, uh, before I forget, I like I said, Sam, your book. We know about your podcast. Yes. Tell us about your book. Yes, I wrote a book called Compliance. It is a. Uh, it starts off with a fairly standard premise where a mysterious stranger travels the world to bring together seven people to take down an evil organization. And if that sounds pretty stock standard, that's what I'm trying to lure you in with. What the book actually turns into is an exploration into different human ideas and themes. And uh, yeah, I can't say too much more without giving away spoilers, but it's uh, a techno thriller, I guess is the best way to describe it. Sort of an action thriller that um, yeah travels the world and yeah, it's quite good. I really, really enjoyed writing it. Uh, it's now been edited, published, everything. So you can buy it on Amazon, Book Depository, all the usual sites. Sweet. I I awesome. didn't, much like uh, while I was watching Howard the Duck, this blindsided me. I did not know that you wrote. I, I knew you as a podcaster. I had yeah. plenty of conversations with you as a podcaster and as a film lover. Never, 
<laughs> the, the idea of writing had like come up. I didn't know that you were working on a novel. I, you know, it just kind of I found out when you were like, "Hey, it's done. It's yeah. happening. Who yeah, wants yeah, it?" Yeah, it's been my secret project for the last couple of years. Basically, I sat down, started writing it, wrote about 150,000 words over the space of two weeks. And then I was like, oh, was this any good? I don't know. And then forgot all about it for six months and then came back, edited it. And then when the disease that shall not be named hit and we suddenly had a whole lot of time inside the house, I thought, now's the time to finish this book. And that's exactly what I've been spending my time doing. And yeah. That's pretty cool. So you're one of those people. You're one of those people that actually did something with their quarantine time. I <laughs> know. What a winker. What a dude. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I know we already talked about movie reviews and 20 cues. One more time, Sam, hit us where uh, we can find you. Yeah, just search movie reviews in. It'll probably be the first one that pops up, but then type the number 20 as in the numbers, not type, like spell it out sort of thing. And yeah, find us everywhere. And if you like more of my stupidity as well as as many stupid people as I can bring on a podcast, that's exactly what that podcast is. So yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right, and closing us down here with our perennial plugs, we'd like to thank the Festive Years for providing our opening and closing tracks. They start us off with Last Stand, take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs. Then you can also head to mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S dot P-E. That's where you find uh, all the links to our friend Hans Rosgeiser's work. Hans is the man behind our logo, behind the designs for our upcoming merch, the designs on our Patreon page. Uh, but he's also a novelist and he's a podcaster. He does a lot of things. He's an economist. Uh, he has kids. It's, well, I don't know about kids on his webpage, but everything else you can find on his webpage, his, <laughs> uh, his zombie novels, links to his four podcasts. He has two podcasts about economy uh one is marginal the other one is uh sonante he has a podcast about peruvian current affairs called uh, nacion combi all those you can find in a podcatcher and then he has a podcast in english uh, called living in peru which is about peruvian immigrants you can find that one on ibox just check out his work you can reach him at mildemonios at hotmail.com or on twitter at mildemonios and lastly, we'd like to thank Zoe Perez for helping out with our social media game, particularly our Instagram account, making a lot of fine, interactive posts, making them look a lot prettier than Julio or I could. Zoe, we appreciate what you do for our social media game. And, uh, keep up the good work. Sam, thank you for joining us. Hope to have you again in the future, uh, hopefully under uh, more certified fresh circumstances the next time around. We'll do a fresh movie next time, yeah. That would be lovely, and look, it's been my pleasure. I've been dreaming about being on this podcast since I was a little boy, so you truly have made dreams come true <laughs> to come on here and talk shit with you guys. And it was great to have you guys on to do The Muppets way back when. As I mentioned, we're doing antithesis of those podcasts. So basically, a lot of people come on. They all talk amazingly about films that they love. So I'd love to have you guys back on to do The Happy Time Murders, okay, the opposite of The Muppets. I'm just throwing it out there, see what you guys think. <laughs> Alex hasn't seen it. I, I have, and I'm not going to say anything until after he watches it. Excellent. Um, I think I think it's fascinating, though, like this weird road that we're traveling uh, that is kind of Muppet-puppet-related. Uh, Muppets, Howard the Duck, Happy Time Murders. I don't know what the next step is. Practical effects, baby. People will think we're secret theories, bro. <laughs> That's what I'm wondering about. <laughs> Uh, all right well happy time murders stay tuned well that is going to do it for this episode of the contrarians where we're right and you're wrong and we will catch you next time Bye.